Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday, June 3rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Takes Mondays to make what? Friday. Okay. In this Ooh. case, it takes Tuesdays to make Fridays. Um, I heard a conversation that you and Mike were having uh, Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. Wednesday about an alligator. So there's an alligator <laughs> on the loose near Mike's um, humble dwelling <laughs> Well, he had been pointing he's, that he's out. He's nodding his head like, oh, yeah, there's yeah. one. <laughs> he'd, he'd been telling me that for a while and hadn't been able to do anything about it. Been hissing at him, he said. but Hissing but, at him? Yeah, that's what he said. So. Wow. Specifically to you? <laughs> you're convinced you're convinced of yes that. he said yes <laughs> <laughs> so so the alligator has a problem with you exclusively free <laughs> okay we, we've got a um we've got a a racist southern gator who doesn't like who doesn't like northerners yankees for some reason but i heard you guys talking yesterday and mike said he hisses, man i mean he hisses well so I, you've got a picture now of him coming out of the storm drain well there was a uh, an alligator that was Look at mike nod his head he's like yeah exactly man you thought think i'm crazy yeah. no i'm telling you it was making the rounds this picture was making the rounds i saw it online on a, on a twitter feed or something but it was actually uh, going down one of the roads here in Florence on Celebration Boulevard. So yeah, an and alligator I said, I wonder is, if this is your 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 friend. Is that the is that the the, the northern aggressive hating gator? Uh the northern aggressor hating gator. <laughs> it's, it's the same gator. So you think Mike, you think the gator singles you out? Interesting. <laughs> well, I mean it's uh it won't be the word here. It's not racist. It's it's I would agree it's territorial. I mean, I think, you know, in certain people, they feel threatened by yeah. others. They maybe not say, so much biased against northerners. biased against northerners. Yeah. There's a better way, a better way to say it. Uh, OK, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so, so we have a producer of the show who was offended, uh, a gator um, in the in the complex, in the apartment complex he lives in. And um, and of all the people who live there, the gator hisses at Mike, our producer. Now, there's another um, angle to take here. He could be a liberal gator. And he could understand your place of employment. Um, I don't know how the Gator would ever listen to Wake Up Carolina, um, but if he did, he could sense some um, conservative biases uh, amongst the three of us and, you know, have identified you as one of these conservative threats to uh, uh, maybe he's a um, a globalist Gator. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe his problem with you is you hang around a bunch of nationalists and he's a globalist um, and he's got more um jaw pressure right i mean he's got more pounds per square inch and all these other sorts of things than you do <laughs> okay there you go there you go hey do we have a call already uh we look, do look, before we go to the call yeah i bear i bear worse news today than i did yesterday oh no. I, i've done i've done i've done more evaluating bumming me on out, this economy this is... and where i think we're headed uh, uh i want to try to explain the difference and what i perceive reality to be today uh and I try to bait these calls at times because I know some of our listeners have unique interest in some of these stories. But let's go to the phone. Someone's already there. Yeah, Carl, uh, early and something on your mind. Hey, Carl. Hey, guys. What's going on? Hey, you Carl. You okay, Ken? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, um, I just want to get some permission for you from you up front, Ken, after you hear this, that I can call in like every day or every other day to kind of remind people because this is very important. Mm -hmm. All right. 
we got these congressional elections in another week and some, right? Now, everybody's focused on the 7th, 7th District, and that's all well and good. That is great, all right? Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how you need to win that one, and everybody knows. Be ready. You live in the 7th District. PD, Grand Strand. Uh, get up go and go to that poll on, this, on the 14th and the 28th. Um, vote against Tom Rice every time. If your person loses the first time around, go back and vote again. Just do that. And then, of course, show up in November. That has to be done. Okay? That will knock him out of the box. But the rest of the people who are listening, Sumter, Orangeburg, Calhoun County, everywhere else, you need to show up as well. Okay? You need to vote in the, uh, the Democratic primary. All right. Everybody on both sides of that, of that primary, of the Democratic side and the Republican side, everybody's black. And so it's not going to make any difference as far as the, you know, the race of the person there. So that is not even the point. That, that particular election is even more important because that is, the, that is the election where we can get rid of Jim Clyburn. And everybody... Um, listen to me, because there's there's people there's uh, there's primaries on both sides in the seventh district. There is no Democratic primary in the sixth district. Everybody, Sumter, Orangeburg, Calhoun County, uh, Columbia, all those places, get up, go vote, and you vote in the Democratic side primary and vote for anybody other than other than Clyburn. If you can if you can get enough people out, you can get him knocked out the first round on the 14th. If he does not get out the first round, go back and vote again against him again on the 28th. That has to be done because what happened is um, two weeks ago, Clyburn had his fish fry like he always does, but this time he didn't have it in Columbia. He had it in North Charleston. So that is telling because there's somebody from, from Charleston running against him in that primary that is to, and no one showed up i mean there were people there but it was very small um so that's telling me that he's got problems and so he did not um motivate his base in the midlands and sumter and orangeburg because he put all his um his eggs in the, in the charleston basket and they're not supporting him down there so this is this you know how can you say you uh, catch lightning in the bottle. This is how you can catch lightning in a bottle. This will be national news if he can get knocked out of the primary. Because if you want to get Trump back in and you do that, you you get rid of the guy who gave us Joe Biden, then you're going to be superheroes for the nation right there in the 6th District. And so I, I just want to be, I mean, I'll, I'll put this in, uh, I'll write, write this down so it's shorter, so I can you know, tell people every time I call, but you have to do that. And I'll call different times a day so people who are waking up late can hear. But that is so important to do. And if I'm not mistaken, the guy running against him is Michael Addison. Um, and then, and then yeah, I think there's a couple of people. I think Addison may be the, the most legitimate 
candidate opposing Jim Clyburn. He's the guy you're talking about from uh, from North Charleston. Um, I will say this. Our good friend Duke is running in the Republican primary against but the way Carl's talking about it is kind of turn around as fair play. Yeah. What, the dem- what we expect the Democrats to try to do here in the 7th District, return the favor in the um in the Clyburn district, which is the what sixth, sixth. congressional district, and um, but Michael Addison Carl is the guy you're talking about. He's the one that I, I think Clyburn perceives as somewhat of a legitimate threat. Um, I don't. I, that's not the one. It's the other guy. The um the, the Dixon guy is the one he came down there for. Okay, Greg that's Dixon. That that's Greg. I don't know. Yeah, Greg Dixon. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I I never heard of the Addison guy, but I know he's running. Um, but the Dick, the Dixon guy is from the Charleston area. Okay. So uh, whoever whoever you want to vote for, and I, and of course you know vote for the Republican in the in the um uh in the prime I mean, not no, not primary in the regular election, but do not vote in either primary either Republican primary um on the on the fourteenth and the twenty eighth. That is so important because. He does not have his base in Columbia and in Sumter and Orangeburg. They are not activated because he did not have his fish fry and they did not show up. And he had that fish fry in North Charleston. And those people are against him because they're pulling for that Dixon person. Okay, good deal. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. Interesting That's That's very interesting. Now, there's another interesting part of this race. If I'm not mistaken, I'll hold me to this. There are two African Americans. There, there's a Republican primary in that district. See, that's going. I mean, that, that's probably Clyburn at work. Oh, I see. I mean, if to Clyburn, the well, if, if Clyburn vote. thinks the Republicans are going to cross over and vote against him, he probably figures up a way to gin, uh, you know, a Republican primary contest, and the Republicans would vote. If I'm not mistaken, there's a, an African American female. And then our, our buddy Duke's running. Um, that's kind of interesting. Carl's kind of opening my eyes a little bit here. So you've got Clyburn and two opponents. You've got three opponents of the Democrat primary. Um, maybe Clyburn's weaker. I mean, we know he's a bit, hey, he's a bit older. He's, a good, he's, a, he's an 80-year-old man. Um, he's in a leadership position in the U.S. House of Representatives. But, but it's odd that there are two African-Americans running in the Republican primary. Um, that's kind of interesting. I mean, Carl, Carl's kind of opened the door here, so I'm my political strategist or, or consultant hat mm-hmm. is coming on now. So if Clyburn believes that Republicans may cross over and do what, you know, the Democrats or we expect the Democrats to do some of in this district, um, you drum up or, or you gin up a way to create a runoff, excuse me, a primary on the other side to entice the Republicans to stay home and vote, uh, demonstrate loyalty to their party. Um, Carl's strategy is probably the better strategy. You know, forget the Republican primary. Um, go vote for the Democrat running against Jim Clyburn, and then go vote in the in the runoff against the Democrat who's running for Jim Clyburn. I mean, if you want to get rid of Clyburn, you're not going to do it with a Republican. Right. You're just simply not going to do it with a Republican. You have to do it in the primary. If you want to get rid of Jim Clyburn, you're going to have to do it in the primary. And, and I guess what Carl's, I mean, if you know, Carl's making the point of, you know. Yeah, I mean, you got two African Americans running in a Republican primary. I just know that's odd. I remember seeing that. I don't know, Rev. Six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks ago, and I remember thinking to myself, subconsciously, that's odd. Two two African Americans running in a Republican primary, but now it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's Clyburn at work. Um, I don't have any idea. I'm completely and totally speculating here. Um, I don't have any source or anything. Um, I would imagine Duke's running unopposed. 
And Clyburn's got to figure out a way to keep some of the Republicans out of his primary so he gins up an opponent. It's a lady named Sonia, uh, Sonia Morris, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so so <laughs> that's probably Clyburn at work. Uh, I, you know, don't, don't, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just, I'm just trying to think political the, strategy. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking you? how a politician would uh, automatically think, <laughs> yeah, if I think there's a chance to get me in a Democrat primary um, by Republicans crossing over, I'm going to figure out a way to create a Republican primary so the Republicans will feel obligated or a higher percentage of Republicans will feel obligated to stay home and vote in that election. Um, I mean, we know Duke well enough. I mean, Duke's been on the show, and he's a very um, genuine person. Don't know the lady. She she may be equally genuine and may sincerely want to be the Republican nominee, but there's something fishy going on there when you've got two African-Americans in a Republican primary in a district that a Republican has almost zero chance of winning. And, and I, I'll ascribe to Carl's theory. If you want to beat Jim Clyburn, I'm sorry, Republicans, if you want to beat Jim Clyburn, crossover vote in the Democrat primary um, for either one of these two candidates, make sure you go back two weeks later and vote in the uh, in the runoff. There, there's kind of a, a weird dynamic in American politics today. We touched on it a little bit yesterday. Um, by the way, thanks for that, Carl. You put some thought into that. Because yeah, uh, been, we've been so consumed by the 7th Congressional District because we broadcast from here and... I mean, the difference in the 7th Congressional District and the 6th, I mean, obviously there's a lot of difference there, but this involves a Trump endorsement and a, and a Trump, you know, candidate who voted, or excuse me, an a office holder who voted to impeach Donald Trump. I'm to speak with the uh, Post and Courier at some point this afternoon. They're probably embarrassed to that, but I am. <laughs> um, th- we've got a call scheduled for three today, and and the, the, the guy, this, he's a reporter, he's a political beat reporter, and he's been uh, tasked with, with covering the 7th Congressional District. And he sent me an email yesterday saying, hey, you know, I, I don't want to get too far inside baseball. I mean, I, you know, uh, I know you can get inside baseball. That's not what I want to do. I want to kind of talk about the demographics of the district. And I mean, the guy's going to really be disappointed because the only demographic that matters. I mean, I told him, I said, look, man, we can talk psychobabble. We can talk political theory. You know, we can talk the, the nature of the district. But, but in all reality, the only thing that matters in this race, guys, and I think the polling is beginning to – I love to tell you I gave you an analysis of the poll. I think the poll has confirmed some of my analysis. I mean, I think some of the things I said six or eight weeks ago have come to fruition, and I think the polling reflects some of these things. But we can talk urban-rural. We can talk PD Grand Strand. We can talk infrastructure. We can talk 73. You know, we can talk the nuances of the district as long as you'd like. But the, the one single factor that will decide this race – Will enough people who voted for Donald Trump vote for the guy who voted to impeach Donald Trump? I mean, that's it's as simple as that. I mean, I, you know, we'd, we'd like to have a long and entailed answer because it makes for better radio and it makes you feel smarter than you probably really are. But I don't think you need to go much deeper than that. The reason when I moderated the debate, I led off with that question. It's the central theme of this campaign. I'm not saying it's the only thing that matters. I mean, there are other things that matter. We'll talk about 73 and infrastructure and the the complicated or complicated nature of the district, a largely rural, got the Grand Strand with all its growth going on and impact fees and stormwater and I mean, you, you, yeah, I mean, it, there, there's a there's a multitude of uh, complications, but this election's pretty simple. I mean, it is going to be about as simple as will the voters of the 7th Congressional District who voted for Donald Trump vote for the person who chose to impeach Donald Trump. 
I think the polling shows the answer is overwhelmingly no. Um, and once again, I've said it, I'll say it again. I think it's virtually impossible for Tom Rice to win re-election with Republican primary voters. But Carl just brought up an interesting theory in the 6th Congressional District. Invert that to the 7. And um, can the Rice campaign drum up enough Democrat voters to get him to 50%? The Republican voters are not going to get him there. In fact, I don't think the Republican voters get him in the 40s. But he's got to go find a bunch of Democrats who are willing to cross over. Uh, talking about a, a campaign, um, you got a gubernatorial campaign in the Republican primary. That's not district specific. I mean, that's statewide. You got Joe Cunningham and Mia McLeod, African American female, former congressman Democrat from Charleston. That's primary. the Democrat primary. Um, you've got, if I'm not mistaken, Jackie Hayes is running for reelection up in Dillon County as a Democrat. Um, Jackie's a longtime kind of a standard bearer for the Democrat Party over in um in that part of the state. So you've got a lot of um complications here. But I think Haley raised awareness on one thing that most have not considered, and that is if Democrats vote in their primary, by that I mean if you feel obligated to go vote for Mia McLeod or Joe Cunningham, who are basically, you know, running, I don't want to say token campaigns, but I mean, they're, they're the heavy underdog without question. Henry McMaster is going to be your next governor. I mean, I'll go on the record and say that's surprise. That took real guts um, and, a, and a political intuition unmatched by others. Um, but, but you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a Democrat, you, you got to think about Mia McLeod and Joe Cunningham and your loyalty to the party. Um, can, can uh, and I think what Kahaley warned about is, there, you know, watch the Democrats go vote in that gubernatorial race, but watch them try to come back two weeks later and vote in the Republican runoff. That's what Republicans need to Which be. Which is illegal. Well, it's totally illegal, but is it enforced? You know, there, there are a lot of things illegal. Are they? It's illegal <laughs> to enter the country, you know, without um, <laughs> right. without immigration visas and all these other sorts of things. How's that working out? Uh, you know, so so yeah, being illegal and being enforced. Uh, or being a reality, two different things. Let's take a break. Our first break of this morning. Thank you, Carl. Got, got the wheels spinning early yeah, this great, morning. Great call. No great question. Idea. Back in a minute. 843 takes Mondays to make Fridays. In this case, takes Tuesdays to make Fridays. Carl had a very interesting and thoughtful, and that's really and truly um, when we have our best days. And I mean that honestly, is when we go places that traditional talk radio. My daughter and I, I told you, she's I'm not a political junkie. But she's um, immersed in politics right now, working as a paid intern with Trafalgar. Um, and she kind of agrees with me that we leave. I mean, she's 18. She's in college. She thinks that we leave a lot of opportunity on the table. She, she believes, as I do, that talk radio listenership is a very serious group of people um, who have been stigmatized as something they're actually not. Uh, you and I were talking during the break. Some of these local politicians in the early, early days were a little bit dismissive of what we did here. Mm. In other words, he's got that crazy universe. Now, now some of the um, some of the chamber crowds still believe that. Some of the establishment Republican, uh, so some of the um, the country club Republican, they're still a bit embarrassed to be associated with you know talk radio. But I think talk radio's future is is similar to the Republican Party. In fact, I think the, tra- the trajectory. And, and, and change or evolution is going to be similar to one another. I'll give this as an example. Um, it is a really good day in Republican politics if Blake Masters gets elected uh, in Arizona. I'm serious. I mean, that, that is another, um, 
you know, we, we talk about America first. It's an infant. It's a baby. We expect a lot out of it because Trump kicked the door down. And now we're kind of, um, we're trying to put the door back up and the hinge won't fit. And, the, you know, the handle's a little bit off kilter. Well, I mean, we're a baby of a movement. I mean, we're not even walking yet. We just learned to crawl. Um, J.D. Vance uh, winning is us kind of taking a baby step. If Blake Masters can win in Arizona, that's another. I mean, we're, we're developing, we're evolving, we're growing up as a political movement. And I think talk radio is going to be very instrumental in adopting this newfound. I mean, nobody accuses Blake Masters or J.D. Vance of being ignorant. I mean, you could accuse them of a lot of things. I think Larry explained it uh, real well years ago, maybe months ago, when he said, you know, the problem with these guys is they can be anything they choose to be. The Peter Teals of the world, the J.D. Vances, um, the, the now Blake Masters who got the Trump endorsement yesterday. Something's up with the polling. I think Robert said a couple of days ago, Blake Masters is in third place, but he's within a couple of points of the lead. And it seems to me he's surging. It seems to me his mm. message is resonating with young voters in particular. But uh, but the Blake Master, J.D. Vance, Ron DeSantis of the Masters, world. He was the one that put the ad out that said is the first statement of the ad was the 2020 election was stolen. The right? first ad he ran. I mean, the introductory ad was not, hey, I'm Blake Masters and I'm smart and made a lot of money. Um, the first ad he said, you know, the election was stolen. And, you know, it was always interesting to me why Trump was reluctant to endorse the guy that was more aggressive than anybody in saying the election was stolen. But what Masters and Vance have done they have given that, uh, here, I want to be shallow for a second. You ready? They've given that the lip service that Trump demands, because he does. I mean, he, you know, Trump really wants you to say the election was stolen. That's a big deal to him. I don't think it's a deal breaker, because other candidates that he's endorsed have not said the election was stolen. Um, I think most candidates say there are a lot of improprieties there, a lot of things we can't uh, understand. And, you know, and, and, and some, of the, um, some of the country club Republicans and all the Democrats say, you got to move on. You got to move along. Well, I've moved on. I've moved along, but I'll never forget it. I mean, I, I still think a lot of things happened that we can't explain. That doesn't mean I'm um, I'm beholden to the cultist leader. You know, that's the way the um, and I was thinking about this this morning. That's the way they try to minimize. Well, I mean, sure, sure. Well, I mean, it's insulting. I mean, it's incredibly insulting. But but when I read when I when I read this morning that the national average in gas is four dollars and seventy six cent, it's never been that high in American history. I mean, if you fill your car up today, odds are you're paying more than any American ever has for gasoline. Um, I don't blame the Democrats. I mean, I'm being honest. I, I expect Democrats to vote for a Democrat candidate. I blame you no-count country club Republicans who thumbed your nose at us morons who were for the America First agenda, who wanted the political party to be molded in, in that brand or image. And I'm not talking about the cultist uh, Trump. I, you know, I'm, I'm not even listening to that any longer. This is not a cult that this is not some blind loyalty. This is a Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, Ron DeSantis-led um, movement that is very thoughtful, Peter Thiel. I mean, is he stupid or not? You tell me, a country club Republican, how stupid is Thiel? How stupid is Vance? How stupid is Blake Masters? I get the newness, and I get the controversy, and I get the fact that they are, um, I mean, I think they represent and embody the political movement that is going to be necessary, and I've labeled it, uh, in my own weird way, intellectual contrarianism. I mean, I think that's what we're going to have to have to get us to a better place. We're going to have to have very thoughtful, smart people who see the world fundamentally different than the typical Politico does. Um, I'm not trusting, uh, you know, the uh, the John McCain, Mitt Romney wing of the party to lead us to a better place. Are you? 
I mean, there's no way in this world. And, I, and I've talked to some of these candidates running for this district, and, and I've tried to counsel them on, hey, this, this train has left the station. You know, are you getting on reluctantly, or are you going to embrace this new direction, this, this, this blank sheet of paper that we get to write uh, the, the, the poem or the song or the story or, or whatever the narrative is? And, um, and that is by no stretch um, stupid or dumb or politically illiterate. You know, I get tired of Republicans lecturing to me about we need pragmatic people. You know, we need mainstream, um, you know, uh, conservative, pragmatic Republicans. What is so unpragmatic about America first? I mean, seriously, g- give me an example of something the America first agenda um, places as a priority. Give me something that is radical. I'll give you something radical. You ready? Uh, a lot of America firsters believe, uh, myself included, that there should be some moral tariff on China. I mean, that's pretty radical in political speak. I mean, most politicians, especially conservative ones, shy away from a tariff. Philosophically, I'm opposed to tariffs. But, but I think it's necessary to deal with unique circumstances in completely and totally unique ways. Guess who agrees with me? Peter Thiel, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters. I mean, th- these are the, the guys that are going to add the intellectual grit and help us grow up in a way that, that we are form- formidable, sustainable, and win elections in places that we've historically not um, competed real well. And, and I just think the days of the stuff suit, you know, the well-combed hair, and I'm talking about Mitt Romney, you know, the suit fits perfect. Romney looks like every weatherman in America. I mean, he really does. He looks the part. He sounds the part. Most Republicans are turned off by that today. Um, they just don't buy into that any longer. Republican and, voters. Republican voters. I mean, you're right. The Republican office holder is a different story, and we're finding out up close and personal. I mean, this will be a living, breathing example of everything we've talked about. And I'm not trying to do a um, – I'm not a, an armchair quarterback. I mean, I said these things before the polling was revealed. I mean, I, I said I thought Russell would be in the mid-30s. We've got him in the mid-30s to upper low-40s. I think 42 is a bit juiced. I'm not going to tell Kahaley that, but I think 42 is a bit juiced. Juiced? What does juiced mean? Uh, there, there, there's an intent to create more momentum than there really is. Um, but but I think, you know, I've, saw, I've seen a Rice poll with Rice at 34 or 5. I think that poll's juiced. You know how I think that poll's juiced? I think that poll is juiced. I'll give you an example. I think some of the polling um, includes, let's say, two of every three Republicans identify as America first. Well, I mean, you need to skew your poll to that reality. You know what? You need to find districts where Trump did real well and precincts where he didn't do so well. I mean, that, that's a genuine sampling of what's out there. Um, but if you pick the, uh, if you poll the voters in the, in the precincts where Trump did incredibly well, you're going to get kind of a juice number. I mean, it's not dishonest. And it happens all the time. I mean, it happens over and over and over again. Take the Rice poll that has him. I've seen one poll with Rice in the mid-30s. I think that includes an oversampling of Democrats. I think they, they've um, that's kind of the model Rice needs to win. you got to get a lot of Democrats to cross over and vote in the Republican primary. Um, but I've said, and, I, and I'll stick to my guns, I think, I think Russell Fry with a Trump endorsement is in the mid-30s. I think Tom Rice with a Trump impeachment by the power of the incumbency and there's still people that don't like Trump, so they reward him for voting to impeach Donald Trump. I think he's in the mid-20s. I don't think anybody else is above 10, but I think Barbara Arthur is bumping there. And she was 9.8 in the Trafalgar poll. Where Arthur is going to benefit, to me, from the, um, from the oversampling of Trump voters. 
I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, that I mean, makes it, sense. Uh, if, if you're not going to vote for the Trump-endorsed candidate, then you'd probably vote for somebody like Barbara Arthur because she screams of these sorts of uh, proclivities of this movement. So um, so when I look at the number, you know, the, it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, if, if you, uh, you said it's kind of weird, my head went to, <laughs> yeah, to a certain place. Yeah, when Carl called about the, the congressional 6th district race and, and proposed what he proposed, uh, the fact that you had kind of already gone there in a way uh, when you had had heard about the Republican candidates that are in that race, uh, the two African-American candidates that are running in the Republican primary, your mind went to, eh, Clyburn might sure, be Sure, but absolutely. In I didn't give it the kind of thought that um that he's given it, that Carl's given it, because I was not thinking about Clyburn. I was thinking about the two Democrats, excuse me, the two Republicans, both African-American, and that just, I mean, that reeks of Clyburn. Yeah, but that's Clyburn trying to keep Republicans in their lane. That's Clyburn trying to keep Republicans from crossing over and voting against him in the primary. Um, because we think that's going to happen here in the 7th Congressional District. 843-661-0937 is our number. Do we have a call? We do. Let's go there. Here's Barry and Sherrall. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, did you happen to see the MSNBC uh, on Hispanics uh, leaving the Democratic Party for the Republicans? I have. Uh, it was uh, Robert's poll was on there, and uh, they talked about it. You know, we've been talking about it for a couple of years now, and they're saying over 50 and 60% in Miami-Dade and in the southwest border of uh, Texas, the southern border, uh, have, have changed over to Republicans. And that, and to me, that's a big, that's a big dynamic in what we're trying to grow here. Uh, the outlook, if, if you can get more and more in African-Americans, we know African-American men um, came over to the Republican Party, the American First Party, uh, and I, I'm, I'm excited, man. I'm excited, especially with Blake Masters yesterday. Um, if he can pull it off, I feel like we're on our way. Uh, but like I said, we're, we're crawling. We're starting to, uh, starting to get our legs under us, and uh, hopefully we can take back this country. Y'all have a great weekend. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't get excited about Republicans winning races. I get excited about America First Republicans winning races. I mean, I, look, I've sold my political soul. S-O-L-D-S-O-U-L, um, to this movement. I've never sold my soul to Trump. I mean, Trump will wane. Nothing is forever in regards to one human being um, as influential as Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin were. I mean, we don't think of those folks every day. I mean, I do because I kind of romance about our founders and our Constitution. But, but Trump's influence will wane. America first can sustain on the backs of elected officials like J.D. Vance, um, like Blake Masters, like Ron DeSantis, like Josh Hawley. I mean, they're, they're a, we, have a, we have a very, very impressive – Rand Paul is another one of these guys. Um, and, and they, they, you know, America First is not a little small sandbox. I mean, there, there's going to be some disagreement within America First. Uh, you know, Rand Paul may be more non-interventionist than Josh Hawley. So we're going to have some fundamental disagreements – Within this, uh, within this movement that is America First, but but I've tried to be patient with it. I've tried to understand, but but I want to reiterate: I am not excited if the Republicans take over the House of Representatives. I'm excited if America First Republicans take over the House of Representatives because I'm a big subscriber to the Uniparty. I mean, I think they disguise themselves as a duopoly. I, I think bipartisan is is hogwash. I mean, I think the two parties are loyal to Washington 
Uh, I put a tweet out yesterday in a Facebook post. Um, there's a reason the government doesn't consider in the way they should uh, the issues of depression, mental illness, which is I mean, depression is a variation of mental illness, mental illness, depression, addiction. Uh, the reason we don't consider those, the government doesn't consider those, is they've not hired the right law firm on K Street. I mean, you want to get compassion and caring flowing? You want to get your Congress talking about depression and mental illness and addiction in the way that it deserves to be spoken about? Hire a big lobbyist. Write a bunch of checks. It, it'll amaze you how much compassion and caring all of a sudden happens when you write checks and, uh, and lobby your government. That's what it is, guys. It is, it, our government has been sold to the highest bidder, and people are mentally ill, depressed, or addicted. Normally, don't have a lot of excess cash, so they don't send a lot of those profits and proceeds of life to our elected officials. I mean, that, you know, that's how the game is rigged, and, and I want to see that stop. I mean, I want to see real Americans be represented by real government in a way that reflects our Constitution, our founding, our fundamental belief in we the people. Take a break. Back in a minute. I'm convinced I don't need to be on the radio. I need to be on a college campus teaching economics and political science. I don't think I, mean, I don't think there's any question about that. They won't let you anywhere near. I think it's wasted campus. potential for me to be on this radio talking to like-minded people about the world. We all see the world kind of sort of the same way. Larry and I have this disagreement because he likes to be disagreeable. And I kind of like being disagreeable. But fundamentally, we have 90% of us have about the same worldview. We probably disagree on um, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But I need to be on a college campus somewhere um, from from 6 until 12. I like the idea of having kids there at 6 because they're real PO'd. I mean, if you make them get up that early and get to <laughs> class. And let's teach the economy from 6 to 12. And then from 12 to 4 or 5, let's teach political science. Um People like me need to make a concerted effort to infiltrate. And people like you, I mean, our listeners, uh, we're, we're kind of like-minded. we we very similar in the way we, we see the world. There just ain't many like us working at the Fed, and there ain't many like us teaching on college campuses they around like this country. They don't like type very much on college campuses. Well, I mean, I, you know how I, I don't think they do. They don't respect our train of thought. <laughs> they just don't believe we understand uh, the sophisticated, sophisticated nature of of the world of which we we live in. So I want a little more analysis on the uh, South Carolina 7th Congressional District polling uh, that we received exclusively the other day from our friend Robert Cahaley at Trafalgar. We appreciate that very We're much. We're going to hit in the Washington Examiner. Real, saw clear, real clear politics. And, and, and you said that there would be a more national attention toward this race. And indeed, you sent me a link to the, mm-hmm. the, the, the story about the polling and where things stand and you're doing an interview today with the post and courier right yeah it'll take two seconds i mean i think the guy wants it to be an hour long you know uh back and forth but it'll take two seconds i mean if you ask me what you think i'm gonna tell him and you know we'll move on you're you're a former obviously political candidate political office holder and so if we're in the basically heading toward the end now the short rows exactly uh just over what about a week and a half mm-hmm. uh, from now mm-hmm. will be election day for the for the um primary um, so if you're one of the, one of the candidates and the poll comes out and you're, uh, you know, less than a percent or a couple of percent, I mean, where, where, where's your mind at this point? I don't know. Cause I've never been there. I mean, that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to be, I've never been there, but I've never been in a place where it looked highly unlikely that I had a chance to, to win. Um, I, I'll say this, there's a couple of, um, I'm going to see this thing through, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to see this thing through. I would argue that if you want to be in politics and, and you're young enough to kind of wait, I'll give you an MMA example. Um, I, I'm kind of an MMA fan. I like to watch it. I like to study it. I like to try to understand it. Um, if somebody gets you in an arm bar 
there are one of two things you can do. You can tap out or you can get your arm broke. It's probably more honorable to not tap out and get your arm broke, but it's stupid. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, if you tap out, you lose the fight. If you get your arm broke, you lose the fight. So strategically and tactically, if I'm in a campaign and, and the polling is fairly consistent of me being at two or three or four or five percent, um, I would probably tap out. Now, now, once again, if this is my one shot at it and I don't ever intend to run for office again, then I'd probably see it through. I mean, I've gotten here. I'm not going to throw the towel in. But if I believe that there's another election, another day for me to try and position myself, um, I guess what I'm trying to say, Rev, is there's a difference in losing and losing with three or four percent of the vote. No, no I mean, that's just mm-hmm. a bad day. I mean, it's never good to lose. It's always um, any any political candidate who's lost a race will tell you it's gut wrenching. It's life defining to some degree. But I think if you're a young person and you believe there's another race, another day, and you look at the realities, you accept the truth is where it is, tap out. Don't get your arm broke. And I think getting your arm broke is kind of the equivalent of getting 2 or 3% of the vote. Um, I don't want to say you embarrass yourself. That's unfair. And I think everybody starts from zero and you do the best you can. Some have very fundamental advantages. The incumbent has a tremendous advantage in any race. Uh, Fry caught a break in the Trump endorsement, gave him a, I mean, it doesn't mean they're, they're lousy candidates running against really good candidates, but for whatever reason, the stars didn't align. And if you want to live to fight another day, don't get your arm broke. Tap out. Something else will come along. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. We're here on a Friday morning. Uh, one call in the first hour. What's up? I mean, are we non-inspiring? Are we not interesting? Is it a? Are we doing something wrong? Um, is the transmitter on? Is the transmitter on? <laughs> uh, we had a visitor a few seconds ago. Wanted to borrow a buck. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're sitting in the studio, and some guy walks in and just stands there. I'm like a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> little bit, we, we all kind of looked around like, okay. Uh, but in typical fashion, just wanted to borrow money. Um, mm-hmm. th- there is no shame in that any longer. You know, you know, I've gotten to the point now when I leave one of the big boxes, I'll, I'll leave a name, one of the big boxes, uh, you can't go past an exit without somebody there, you know, begging for money, panhandling for money. There was a day in my life, I don't know why, but there was a day I just wouldn't make eye contact. I'll stare them down and wave at them now. Because I think they're gaming the system. I don't think they're any more broke than I am. In fact, um, our sheriff called one day and uh, said they the, the one they stopped out at a big box that everybody knows the name of, and he had sixteen hundred bucks cash with him. So I don't think he. I probably um, don't have as good a financial circumstances he does. Mm-hmm. So I don't hesitate to make eye contact. In fact, I kind of wave and um, and you know, <laughs> hey. But but there was a day, you know, it was like I mean, I can't. I can't look at this guy on the corner because he's gotten some hardships in his life and he's gotten something that happened to him. I mean, I don't know his story. Um, there's actually a song, you know, a country song about that. Uh, but but now I'll, I'll stare him straight in the eyes. Wave. You watched the Braves last night, my man? Because I know Dude. damn well you're not broke. I mean, you probably stay somewhere with a bigger television than I stay. I'm, I'm just convinced of that. I, I am more. And maybe that is the, um, I don't want to say intellectual contrarian. I don't have that one part covered but that's the contrarian in me uh just ultimately believing whatever it is i think to be true um and normally uh no, no, my wife would disagree that's that's ugly that's ugly you can't do that you can't well watch watch and see let's go to the phone here's mike in darlington good morning mike 
Hey, Ken, I disagree with you. You're on fire this morning. <laughs> I think people are just mesmerized and stunned. There you go. Now mesmerized and stunned. Now we're talking. <laughs> now we're talking. There, you know, um, I was talking with my son uh, the other day, and uh, we were talking about actors. Some actors are just fun to listen to, like uh, Nicolas Cage and Christopher Walken. Well, you're, uh, you're fun to listen to, but you actually got something to say. And that's uh and that's uh what I really enjoy about the show. You probably uh interfered with my productivity, what pitiful amount it is, more than any other uh a- any other phenomena in my life. <laughs> uh but uh <laughs> I, I I just uh, thoroughly enjoy your show and I think it should be required listening. It should be uh, you should ha- teach a course and it should be a uh, required course for anyone uh, aspiring to get uh, some uh, letters after their name. Hey, hey Mike, there's another yeah. um, there's another liner idea, Mike. Interfering with productivity all over South Carolina. <laughs> Wake up, Carolina. Yeah. How about that one? <laughs> it works for me, uh, and it's been a fact for me. But uh, they, uh, I, I think uh, I, I actually uh, fear for you because uh, you you're just uh, talking too much common sense. And I, I think they're going to try and take you off the air eventually because they can't have that kind of thing going around. Uh, you know, common sense. I, I could not believe that yelling woman uh, saying she couldn't see uh, uh, inflation coming. That is just beyond crazy. It's like uh, I can't define what a, a man or a woman is. And uh, it, I mean, uh, why use the word lesbian? Why use the word uh, bisexual if you can't define uh, such simple things as that and such basic things? I think they just, uh, it, it, it's a whole delusional network like the, uh, all these windmills killing birds everywhere, everything from uh, hummingbirds to Canadian geese. And they want to stick them up everywhere in the flyways and uh they're they're not reliable. They're not ready to work. Uh, they uh, they're a good little stopgap in some situations, but uh, they uh, this stuff just isn't ready to go. And a lot of people don't realize how much maintenance goes into keeping up these solar panels. I think uh, some people have realized you got to get the weeds off of them. You got to clean them regularly, and uh, you got to keep. Uh, the the goats and the jackasses from getting in there and busting them up, and that's that. That's just uh, it, there's just uh, un uh, maintenance that they haven't accounted for. But um, I I really appreciate your show, and I think uh, you need to keep it up uh, and uh, don't don't get discouraged because I think some people were just so mesmerized with your uh, mesmerized and stunned. I think is what you yeah, said, mesmerized yeah. and stunned. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, mesmerized <laughs> Well, you pitiful yeah, masses. Uh, Thank you, Mike. Appreciate <laughs> it. Have a good weekend and appreciate the kind words. Uh, Mike was talking about Janet Yellen. I'm going to go back and explain something that we debated a bit yesterday uh, because it, it came across as if I know where we're headed. Uh, for clarity's sake. Now, most of you understand, uh, I don't know where we're headed. I have an opinion of where we're headed. Um, I have some confidence in that opinion. I have more confidence in certain parts of that opinion than I do others. But we're taught, um, I mean, I, one of the, I don't know, one of the great things about this show, if there is anything great about this show, it's an open forum. Um, Rev laughed last week. We, um, in the same segment, we said cut and fool and negative interest rates. <laughs> 
Uh, where, where do you mm-hmm. where, where do you get cut and fool one second and then talking negative interest rates uh, another second? Well, one of the uh, one of the smart boy subjects we delved into uh, yesterday and a couple of days ago uh, when I told Rev I was the bearer of bad news uh, when it comes to the economy uh, is quantitative tightening. And I had a lot of follow up conversations yesterday during my day about quantitative tightening. Uh, the majority of my friends say, who do you think you are talking about quantitative tightening? You don't know what quantitative tightening is. I said, no, but they're doing it. They do it, Jerry. I can assure you <laughs> that they're doing it, and they do it all the time. And when they do it, you'll know it. Well, they don't. you better believe we're going to know it. They don't do it all the time. But, but basically, monet, uh, quantitative tightening is when the Federal Reserve reduces its supply of liquidity. Um, monetary reserves are on the Fed's balance sheet. There's a reduction in the supply of the money. Now, now how do they do that? They, they, they let the bonds and the other securities that mature um, not be reinvested. In other words, if they buy a 90-day T-bill or a 60-day or a 30-day and they've got, you know, a trillion dollars worth of that, they mature, that money goes away. I mean, it goes off their balance sheet. It goes out of circulation. They don't take that trillion and buy another 90-day uh, tranche of securities or, or more, you know, uh, bonds or any sort of investment instrument. So, so here's what I want to say for clarity's sake, because Larry and I debated a bit the housing um, and I think I probably tried to argue too much to the housing side of this. Um, when someone goes to rehab, we talked about mental illness, depression, and addiction. When someone goes to rehab, I'll use my kid as an example. I mean, I've told this story, and I'm not ashamed of it. My son was addicted to opiates. He was not depressed or mentally ill. He was addicted. We knew that if we could fix that addiction, he would be a different person, and his life would be fundamentally changed forever. Some of these people go to these treatment centers and, and you, you know, you wonder whether the mental illness or the depression led to drugs and addiction or the addiction led to depression. You know, what came first, chicken to the egg? In other words, it's complicated. Well, in 2008, Rev, we had an addict. We had a housing problem. We had subprime lending and redline and community reinvestment acts. I mean, there are a lot of things the government did to force lending institutions to make pretty irresponsible loans. But it was that. We understood it. In other words, if we can cure the addiction, we can weather the storm. Um, What we're dealing with today is, um, and this is where I'm deeply concerned, we don't know if it's depression. We don't know if it's mental illness. We don't know if it's addiction. In fact, we believe that it could be all three. We unwound um, about a trillion dollars in debt during the 2008, 9, 10, 11 housing fiasco that fundamentally reshaped our economy and has scarred my generation. I mean, I've got people now that will not reinvest their money because they didn't have any in 2008-9, and they're just not going to get caught in that situation again. I mean, these are very capable business people, and I would argue a lot of what happened in 2008 is why the economy is only growing at about 1.5%, because people with capital remember what it was like. It was not the Great Depression. But I watched my grandfather pick up bolts and nuts and scrap iron off our you know, business floor, and we threw it away. He would pick it up because he lived through the Great Depression. He saw what it was like to live in um, or to see people in soup lines that he never imagined would be in soup lines. So here's the problem as I see it, uh, and I'm not Jamie Dimon. Now, Jamie Dimon can give a far more complicated, but he basically says he sees an economic hurricane heading our way. Here's why I think Dimon calls it an economic hurricane. There's no precedent to this. 
I mean, there is no, there is nothing to compare this to. We're going to basically quantitative tighten about six trillion dollars out of circulation. And the word I used yesterday was speculative. If Rev makes $100,000 a year and the owners of the radio station come in tomorrow and say, Rev, we, we think you've done such a wonderful job, we're going to give you a million dollars a year. What, are, are, yes. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, if you want a beach house, do you really care what it costs? You begin to get speculative. You mm-hmm. don't think you're being speculative. You just think you're living a better life. But, but the economy in, in the aggregate became unbelievably speculative yep. with that $7 trillion of excess capital. Um, the, the house is worth three hundred, but I'm willing to pay four because I want it. And there's capital floating around. There's liquidity floating around everywhere. Interest rates are at 2 or 3%. Uh, percent. 30-year notes at 2.75%. Uh, and we get the negative interest rates. You know, I mean, we got extreme negative interest rates now. Somebody asked me to explain it again. Okay, negative interest rates are simply this. When the cost to borrow money is cheaper than the cost to spend money, that's negative interest rates. When you go to the bank and borrow money, they charge you 5%. You go to the grocery store, they charge you 20 I mean, interest, inflation is 20%. You're paying a 20% premium to spend your money. You're paying a 5% premium to borrow the money. That's negative interest rates in G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip um, expl- explanation. But when you go to quantitative tightening, in, in 2008, we had an addict, and we knew if we could fix that addiction, we could, we could solve some of the ills of the economy. We have no idea what it looks like to unwind $7 trillion. I don't think they'll do it. I think they'll stop at three or four and freak the blank out. I mean, I really believe that. I think they'll get to $3 trillion by the end of this year, maybe the middle of next year, and they'll say, holy God, we can't do this any longer. I mean, the, the market could be at $20,000. Uh, we could have negative 2% GDP, maybe negative 3%, maybe negative 4% GDP. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, I think that's where we're... We're headed, um, and then what do they do? Well, they can't do much of anything, Rev, because they sold their soul to the devil in the name of COVID relief. We gave people money to not work. Um, we basically turned business owners into quasi-unemployment agents. It's almost like if you list what we did in response to COVID, why did we not expect we were going to end here? I said it then, I'll say it again. As a non-trained economist, it is the epic failure of our American government. I don't remember some stupid things they did in days gone by. But in my lifetime, I could understand to some degree what they did in response to the housing uh, problem. There, there is no explaining this. And here's where my shining uh, or, or the, the light switch turns on for me. Remember the sh- show we did a while back when we kind of like, I mean, I was all about abolishing the Fed, abolish the Fed, abolish the Fed. Mm-hmm. And that's radical, radical, radical. Um, John Allison, former CEO of BB&T, agrees with me. Um, but we think it's less radical for the government to spend money it doesn't have, the Fed to buy that debt with money they don't have, but to create that money out of thin air. Well, here we are. I mean, here we are. Inflation is, I mean, inflation is probably 20, 25%. I mean, the government measures it, what, 8, 8.5%, somewhere there about highest ever. I mean, I read something this morning. Uh, the next quarter should be or could be the highest inflation measure in American history, probably 9%. Somewhere there about gas is uh, national average four seventy six. Um, you go to the Waffle House now; it's thirteen bucks. It used to be nine. You you, you can't tear your wife and your kid out to dinner. Uh, it used to be forty bucks, not sixty five. I mean, you've told me stories about going to the grocery store. Yeah. You, you've got a an index finger full of groceries. It's a hundred bucks. Crazy. I mean, it, it's absurd. It's crazy. Well, that's what happens, guys, when you do the ridiculous things we did to try and keep an uh, an economy from going into recession. 
shutdowns, lockdowns, social distancing, Fauci, Burks, uh, Biden. I mean, pick your pick your suspect. Doesn't matter to me. There's so many people to blame for this. And here's what has happened. Um, the money has all ended up where we expected the money to end up, in, in government's hands or in corporate America's hands. I mean, that's where the money is. Diamond says he thinks the consumer has about six more months of purchasing power. In other words, um, we hadn't run out of um, grifting yet. Uh, the, the government printed so much money. There's some of us that still have it in our hands, and um, and we're hesitant to purchase it now. Uh, but but we that's what happened to the housing market. So yesterday, I tried to argue. I, tried, I think I, I, I kind of backed myself into a corner by comparing the housing problem in 2008 to the housing problem uh, today. I think we've created a problem in housing because we don't look at it as an asset any longer. We treat it as an asset class. And housing is not an asset class. It's an asset. Now, my father argued it's a liability. That's one thing I disagree with him on. Now, my father would always argue a house is not an asset, son. It's a liability that you live in. I mean, and he, he meant that with every fiber of his being. I mean, you couldn't convince him that, that a house, uh, that the appreciation of a house did not, you know, exceed whatever your mortgage is. I mean, you, maybe you pay three hundred for your uh, for your home, but look at the uh, look at the principal and interest. I mean, how much do you end up in that over a thirty year period of time? He always argued that a home is a liability. But yesterday, I tried to argue this impending um, hurricane, Jamie Diamond's word, not mine, mm-hmm. compared to two thousand eight. And I think in two thousand eight we had an addict, and if we could get that addict treated, I think today we've got someone going to rehab. They're depressed, they're mentally ill, and they're addicted, and we don't know which caused which. So we don't know, do we treat depression first? Do we treat addiction then? Do we treat addiction first? Do we treat, it's complicated. And I think the um, the contagion, here I am with, a, with an economist word, the contagion here could be something we've never, ever in a million years. Guys, we unwound via quantitative tightening about $1 trillion in 2008. We know what that did to the economy. We're going to try to unwind somewhere between five and seven trillion dollars and we expect gdp growth to not uh recess of course i mean a recession is unavoidable how bad is the recession is it minus two percent gdp growth per consecutive quarters or is it minus four or five or six or seven percent uh for two consecutive quarters and i just wanted for clarity's sake that's that's why i'm alarmed and concerned we pumped all this capital, all this liquidity into the economy in the name, in the name of COVID relief. You know, everybody wants to do right. And I'm telling you, one of the people who will be blamed at some point in time for downgrading the quality of life my kids live will be Dr. Fauci. And whomever trusted him wow. on public health policy. I mean, the politicians ultimately made the call. Fauci doesn't vote on anything. He makes recommendations, and then the government responds accordingly. And and I think Fauci is going to be looked at in history as the guy that potentially um, led a generation of Americans into a lesser quality of life. And that's that's a pretty um, traumatic statement to make as a um, a patriotic American. Explain to me where the rubber meets the road. Uh, what you think Jamie Dimon means when he says six months of buying power. I think he believes that that, that it's going to take six months to get that much. It's going to take six months to quantitative tighten enough capital out of the system that we really begin to sense it. In other words, when when, when we start restricting, remember it's 95. But when we sense it, what happens? Nah, that's a good question. Don't know. That's probably the scary part. Mm. I I don't know. Uh, And I don't think Jamie Dimon knows. I think that's why Jamie Dimon uses a broad hurricane. 
I mean, that, you know, that covers a lot of things. Now, I think Diamond's motivated by money. I think, you know, we're, we're, to believe Jamie Diamond is a sincere pundit in all of this, no. Diamond didn't have anything to say about the quantitative easing because J.P. Morgan, I'm sure, has ended up with more than their right. fair share of that free money. But once we start the tightening, he's probably shortened the housing market. He's probably shortened sectors of the economy. Uh, you know, there, there are a handful of people, guys, that move the market, and he's one. Let's go to the phone. Here's Tim in Florence. Good morning, Tim. Hey. And by the way, Mike has changed my name. I used to be troublemaking Tim, but I like Tim. It sounds more sophisticated. Okay, it does. <laughs> it does. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, but real quick, just uh, to add some content to what you said, um, you know, credit card debt uh, for March was predicted to be $25 billion. Now it, it ended up at $52.4 billion. And uh staggering stat that just came out uh, yesterday you know, previously 70% of the U.S. was living paycheck to paycheck, but now one-third of the U.S. making over $250,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. And so just thought I'd throw that out there, too. Yeah, I'd read those stats. Thank yeah. you, Tim. Thank you, um, non-troublemaking yeah. Tim, this morning. But I'd read some of those statistics. It's hard to believe that 33% of all Americans making over a quarter million dollars a year are living paycheck to paycheck. But we're drunk with money. Um, Elon Musk said, um, I mean, he's, he's kind of, you, you hear some things about Tesla. I mean, he thinks Tesla has 10% too many employees. They got about 105,000 employees worldwide. He wants a 10% reduction in the workforce and he's demanding employees start coming back to work, you know, in office or in on the job 40 hours a week. But he says that a lot of his belief is predicated on a very, I mean, he's a, he's a complex and brilliant man, but he explains it in the way that it, all of us can understand it. He said, you can't rain money on fools, but for so long. I mean, if it rains money on fools in perpetuity, eventually, eventually that ends. So that's not perpetuity. You can't do that forever. And I think when the Fed begins to reduce the supply of monetary reserves uh, to tighten its balance sheet, and, and they're doing that by once again letting the bonds and securities mature and not re- I mean, that it's going to, and I think Diamond, when Diamond says six months, I think he's got a far more informed opinion than I, far more analytical opinion. But I think what Jamie Dimon believes is in six months, we would extracted enough liquidity out of the economy that you'll begin to really feel it. But once again, Rev, we understood the housing disaster. We understood that. That was housing. Now, it was a, I mean, it was a domino effect. There was contagion. I mean, no doubt about it. Uh, the financial sector had a bunch of mortgage-backed securities and quantitative, uh, well, not quantitative, uh, synthetic derivatives and all these creative ways of finance. But it was finance and it was housing. I think this is something that we can't, there is no precedent to this. And I think that's why Diamond says a hurricane because, mm, you know, we have Category 1 hurricanes and we have Category 5 hurricanes let's go to the phone here's but joe I, i'm sorry i'm sorry we're, we're running way behind can uh, uh joe hang in there hang in there i don't want to get too far yep. behind this morning we'll take a break we'll be back Good in just a second you know this is pretty interesting during the pandemic during the pandemic i mean imagine this guys i mean we're dealing with um uncertainty and despair and uh, you know the economy shut down some states are still just opening back up the average price of a home in America. Now, this is not confirmed data. It's some of the early reporting. You know how they revisit and revise some of these numbers. Yep. But the average home price in America went from 290 to 380. So in the middle of a pandemic, the average house increased $90,000 in value. Of course it didn't. But their stimulus, macroeconomic stimulus, will make things completely and totally irrational. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe, thanks for holding on. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, 
Jamie Dimon sees that, uh, well, there's two programs going on. You know, they were putting $150 billion a month into the economy. Now they're pulling $95 billion a month out. Well, they're going to pull $47.5 billion until September, and then it goes up to $95 billion. Right, right. Well, September's when the hurricane hit. <laughs> because people, that's what he's talking about. Well, that's hurricane season, Joe. We'd right. expect that, wouldn't we? People, <laughs> <laughs> people are, are living on all this extra money, right? How do you think the crypto markets ran up so fast? All this extra money, they had to park it somewhere. I mean, they're buying stupid pictures for $500,000 just to to find somewhere to park money. But the the problem that he sees is, like your previous caller said, people are starting to run out of that excess cash, and they're starting to run back up credit card debt, housing debt, everything else. And, and the, he sees the ESG. You know, we've touched on that, and nobody really knows a whole lot of what it is, that environmental social governance. It's, it's all these regulations. No matter who we vote into Congress, they have got to take back, take back their lawmaking power. Now the EPA, the FDA, all these three-letter numbered agencies are making law, and none of them were elected by the people. You know, they're, they're telling these school districts that if you don't go along with our Title IX transgender garbage, we're going to cut off your school funds for food programs. Now, who does that hurt? And tell me that they give a damn about poor people. You know, so they're putting squeeze on the red states because the blue states already do it. But he's looking at this tsunami that's coming up. Yeah, like I say, gasoline is going to go to over $6 a gallon. But I don't understand why people are upset. Joe Biden sat there and told you he is going to fundamentally transform America, take us off of fossil fuels, and, you know, he, he they told us what they were going to do, and they still voted for it. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. The diamond has to be a little more measured because what Jamie Dimon says as chairman and chief executive of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, I mean, it matters. What I say doesn't matter. Uh, I, I guess the best compliment I could get is that damn fool knows what he's talking about. I mean, I don't know if that's a backhanded compliment or not, but but I've had several people, you know, friends of mine say, hey, I got a buddy listening to your show. He said, that damn fool might know what he's talking about. Um, is that a compliment or not? Um, I don't know if I know what I'm talking I know this. I know that quantitative easing creates an unrealistic supply of money that is going to lead to inflation. I mean, I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it again. Macroeconomic stimulus always creates inflationary pressures. We there There is no example in humankind of what our government did. There's no precedent here, guys. We printed somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 trillion, and we just kind of flooded the economy with that $6 trillion. Now, you know, some of the Republicans voted for it. Uh, the CARES Act, CARES II, American Rescue Plan, uh, some of the tax credits. And I mean, it, we got real creative and allowing people to not be burdened by COVID and some of the economic realities that come along with the pandemic. Uh, and, and what we've done really and truly in modern economic history when it comes to uh, American politics, we've tried to delay the inevitable. A, a recession is a cleansing. It's a purging of inefficiencies. Uh, if we're going to run capital markets and have a market-based economy, 
you're going to have recessions. Recessions are necessary. They have to happen. It's a little bit like, I don't want to be vulgar here. It's a little bit like when you're sick, you throw up, you feel better. I mean, you got to throw up. You got to get that stuff out of you. Recessions allow us to clean and purge our, our financial and economic system of, of things that just aren't working. But, but politicians don't like to run under recessionary conditions. So what do they do? They create policy. They, they go to Keynesian economist, and Keynesian economist said, well, I mean, it looks like we're going to have a recession, but if we printed another trillion bucks, we could probably delay it. And next thing you know, you wake up with 33, 34, 35, 40 trillion dollars in federal debt. You've got six or seven trillion dollars in capital or liquidity floating around in the economy that has no business being there. And all of a sudden, quantitative tightening is going to take that money back out of the system, and we believe there's a soft landing ahead. Guys, there is no soft landing ahead. And the only answer to this and not, I mean, the only soft landing answer to this is all of us buy into modern monetary theory. And that means the government owns the currency. The government uh, prints the currency. So the government can do whatever it chooses to do with that currency. If you ascribe to modern monetary theory, there's nothing to fear here. But but I don't ascribe to that. I, I just think that's it's craziness. It's nonsense. I mean, it, it, it makes Keynesian economists look like uh, Milton Friedman. But, but it's, it's what we, and, and I'll tell you that the, the light coming on moment for me was the, the day we began down the road of trying to better understand the Fed. And we did this, this together because I'm still of the opinion, and I think it's far less radical to argue abolishing the Fed than I do believe. I mean, think of what the Fed has done, guys. I mean, just kind of put your thinking cap on me, with me for one second. So the government appropriates money it doesn't have to fund whatever programs it is. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, infrastructure, education, take your choice. But the government funds that program with money they don't have. The Fed buys that debt with money they don't have, but they have the ability to create that money out of thin air. We, we did that tenfold. We, we, poured, we didn't pour gasoline on the fire. We poured rocket fuel and nitroglycerin on the fire, and here we are. And I think Jamie Dimon has to be measured because when Dimon says things like a crazy radio show host says, the market reacts, the economy responds, because this is one of the one of the really bright minds of American uh, banking and, and the economy in general. Um, but but I'll say it. I mean, I don't see any way out of this. I think there is a terrible, terrible, terrible economic outcome headed our way. What it looks like, I don't know, because there's absolutely zero precedent to what we're going to try and do, because we chose to basically make everybody whole during a health crisis. We overreacted. We overresponded. I'll ask you this question. Ponder this as we go to our break. What if the Fed couldn't print money? How much shutdown would we have had? How much social distancing would we have done? Well, if the if the Fed had a balanced budget, if the federal government operated as local and state governments do on a balanced budget amendment, and the Fed couldn't print the money to allow the government to deficit spend, what would we have done in response to COVID? You know what we'd have done? We'd have gone our ass to work in school. We'd have, put, we'd have put masks on, we'd have made it as safe as we could, but we would have accepted the financial realities that should be in play. Take a break. Back in a minute. Hey, when Jamie Dimon and I say the same thing, you better pay attention. What was the other? Uh, what was the old commercial, Lee F. Hutton, when Lee yeah. F. Hutton speaks to everybody? Yeah, everybody when, 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 when me and Jamie Dimon are on the same page, because um, we care about the same weight in the world of, um, of economic affairs and American banking, you would agree. What are you laughing about? Ask, ask Jamie Dimon that, if okay. he wants to be associated with... with I'm sure Jamie comments. Dimon does not, but he's a smart guy. Uh, he has to be measured. I mean, he's not hosting a radio show. 
Um, he's the chief executive officer and chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase. And, um, and what the guy says matters, and he has to be guarded about spooking the markets and spooking uh, the economy. I don't have to. I mean, it's, it's kind of my job to spook the market and spook and spook the economy. Hey, you got a guest with us this morning. It's interesting that Buddy's with us. Buddy Brand is a member of county council and candidate for re-election in the Republican primary January uh, June 14, if I'm not mistaken. But, Buddy, you've been in finance uh, nearly your entire life, or pretty much your entire adult life. I uh, said you met Jamie Diamond I one did. time. Okay. About three year, two or three years ago and, out of the healthcare care and, and an impressive man. A very impressive man. Very much uh, the kind of man you want to listen to what he says. Uh, he has some adjectives I wish he wouldn't use like hurricane, but uh, other than that, <laughs> he definitely knows what he's talking about. He's got his finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in our country. He, and, he and, understands. And is to be taken very seriously when he Absolutely. does say these things. Okay, that, I'll segue into this. Now, the, the one thing that you've gained a reputation of is being fiscally responsible. I mean, that's something you take a lot of pride in. Uh, your, your reputation, as long as I've known you, consists of uh, but he's going to make sure we're in good financial standings is that because of what you do for a living or the fact that government just i mean it, it must live within its means it well i think it's probably both i mean i i've, I've always uh, felt that for 40 years i've been an investment counselor in some form either a banker or um, in an investment business and it just uh it, it rubs me wrong when i see spending that's uncontrolled we have to control what we have Balanced budgets is what I'm really all about. Uh, you know, the state of South Carolina has a balanced budget. We need that in our country, in my opinion. Um, it, it, because of what I do and try to moderate people's needs and emotions and that kind of thing with their funds, it's very important to me to make sure they understand, number one, what the economy is doing best I can, what uh, the repercussions of rising interest rates or lower rates are doing, and that's just built into my nature because of 40 years worth of doing this. Okay. And you want to do it for more? I, I would like to do that. Okay. I, I, why does Buddy Brand want to be reelected to county council? Well, here, here's my my charge. As 15 years on, on city council, I've been on county council a year and a half. Nothing, you cannot make major moves in a year and a half. I need some more time to try to do what we did on city council, i.e., the downtown what happened downtown with, with the investors down there, with the city manager? The same's going through the county. I will say the county's uh, council is very uniquely all together on what we're trying to do. Um, I believe in the next four years I can make a, a challenge to what I did, or not I, but what we did on city council. It just doesn't happen. I've had a year and a half. I want more time. Uh, I believe that collaboration with the city and the county is vital to what I'm doing. Uh, I have a monthly breakfast with the mayor to try to discuss this kind of thing, which I don't know when that's happened. And uh, I believe that we, that my ability to handle personal personal relationships is very good. And that's what I'm really pushing is my contacts, not with just the city or the county, but those representatives around us. That's very important. And I don't believe that I'm just a councilman for District 8. I'm just like I was on District 3 for the city. If somebody calls me from another district and needs something, I'm going to help them one way or another. I believe I'm a councilman really for the whole county mm -hmm. and not just the county. I think it expands far beyond that. I think we, as Florence goes, so does Marion, Dillon, Lake City, everything. So we've got to, we've got to keep that. I also believe, Ken, that I'm a, a good moderator. I believe I can build team teamwork within that, and I think I've, I've shown that. I, obviously, you related to the, fis, uh, the fiscal responsibility. 
that's huge. I mean, to me, you, you got to be fiscally responsible, whether it's the city, the county, and I believe both are. Um, but your, your question is, what are my objectives? Number one is jobs. That's in our community. If we don't have jobs, we can't, our people can't live properly. Number two is provide safety for our community. Well, we just increased the sheriffs, the EMS, and all the county employees on uh, breedings to get them nice pay raises, particularly the sheriff and EMS. I mean, the, what they put themselves through every day. So I'm excited about that. We have the ability to do that. The Probably the main thing, which I mentioned the last time I was on this show, is kids. I want my grandchildren, my kids, to come home. I don't want them to go to Charleston, to Greenville. Or if they do go, I want them to come home. And so we need to make the environment where we live enticing to come back. And we have to have the jobs. We have to have the infrastructure. We have to have a collaboration between the city, the county, and all those municipalities around us to bring them home. And that's really, really important to me, to get my kids home. Buddy, when you look at jobs, the county's made an investment in economic development. For a long time, um, you know, you kind of just hope and cross your fingers. Now they seem to have a cohesive plan. Uh, Philip Lowe talked last week about the commitment the state has made Absolutely. to help subsidize, um, you know, sites and buildings and pads and all these sorts of things. Is that sound strategy from your perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we're competing not just on a statewide level, but we're competing on a regional level in the United States against North Carolina, Florida, and they're providing, Tennessee, they're providing all kinds of incentives for these companies to come here. And if we don't do that, we're just going to be in a stagflation type thing where nothing's going to happen. But yes, the state is doing it, and the Commerce Department and this uh, new Commerce Secretary, Harold Lightsey, I, I think he's just what we, we need here. I think he's got the, the momentum and the desire to get this stuff done. We have to do it. Very important. What has been the challenge from transitioning from a member of city council to county council? Uh, you're ba- basically saying, I need more time. You know, I've been there a year and a half. I, I kind of know where the water cooler is now. Right. Give me four more years and let me immerse myself in. Well, what has been the biggest difference you've seen? That's, that's, a, that's a super question. I would say the biggest difference is the ability uh, to have a, an opinion that everybody will listen to. And I think the administration that we're working with uh, understands what we're trying to do. But the cohesiveness, the friendliness, the the ability to talk to other council members and them understand what the needs are, that's probably one of the biggest differences. But the, even bigger than that is understanding rural communities. What 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 Pamplico needs? What Lake City needs? Back when I was with the city, we didn't think about what those communities need. That's a, that's a big part of it. So if, if we're getting people in from Pamplico and Lake City and Darlington and all around us, that helps Florence. That helps McLeod, MUSC. It helps everybody. So that's probably the biggest difference is we're helping a wider variety. But that's all what what we're what I'm all about and Fair what enough. I think our council's about. Right, you got a minute. Uh, I'll let you make one last plea to the voters. I mean, the election is June 14. Uh, the Republican primary, that'll be a hotly contested Republican primary all over our area. But um, how can someone communicate, contact, support, uh, vote for Buddy Brand? I would love them. They may call me at my office, 665-7599, or my home, 665-6980. I'm, I'm always readily available to talk to anyone. I've done that my whole career. I'm not going to change now. But I would say this. If you want financial responsibility and conservative government and you don't want run away anything and you want somebody to watch out for your dollar, I'm your man. Okay. Thank you, buddy, Brian. Thank you, member, Jen. Currently Thank you. member of county council running for reelection. 
June 14 in the Republican primary. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Hey, we'll let CNBC have Jamie Dimon. We don't want Jamie Dimon in the studio. <laughs> we got right. our trifecta of, of, of representation here. Philip Lowe, Jay Jordan, and Mike Rickenbaugh are with us, two members of the House of Representatives. Uh, Senator Rickenbaugh, kind of new to the job, still a bit new to the job, but you're, you're feeling your way around better, Mike. Is that fair to say? I'm getting in there, buddy. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> jump, jump in the deep end. <laughs> Good deal. And then we got two. Um, Philip is the oldest hand at this, and, and Jordan, you'd be the middle middle child. I'm still this. the best looking. In the <laughs> <laughs> I got that going. <laughs> okay. What, whatever you say there. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, let's, um, I, I want to start. I don't want to be serious here for a second. We, I want I want to get to some other, uh, I want you guys to put on your political pundit hat at some point in time. But before we do that, I want to get to a very, very serious issue um, that I shared a text with all three of you about, and all three of you agreed that, yeah, we need to um, engage the public on what it is we're thinking. Uh, Representative Lowe, I think, has a bill um, out there about school safety, and I'll let you elaborate uh, as much as you'd like on that. But when these sorts of things happen, they're horrific, they're tragic, it breaks all of our hearts, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, but the liberal left always flies to the gun, the gun, the gun, gun control, gun control, the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment. Um, I'm one that believes that hardening some of these soft targets is something achievable. It's pragmatic. Um, let's go there. We can debate gun control and the Second Amendment, the absolutist or not of the Second Amendment. But um, Representative Law, I'll start with you, if you don't mind, because you do have um, kind of a history of engaging in this. Um, is there a bill? Is there an interest in the General Assembly in working with uh, public education in hardening some of these soft targets, our public schools where our kids go every day? Well, I had introduced one. It was a, it, maybe three or four years ago. I think I've actually done it twice now. And it was a very reasonable way of, of allowing teachers or any employee at the school who was approved by the principal, approved by the board, uh, it went and got training, true training, on, on what to do. They wouldn't make them a genuine police officer, but what to do in the case of, of a problem. To have that person be able to have a gun that that could be on their person, but it had to be some type of a locking me- mechanism. They've got fingerprint technology that the only person that can fire a gun is the guy who owns it or the girl who owns it. So if their fingerprints match up when they grip that gun, the gun engages opens up and it can be fired then if it fell on the floor a student couldn't shoot it for anything it just shut right off we had many different safety measures in there and only volunteers and only the people that were approved only the people that got trained could help but you've got to take out the notion that the school is a target rich environment that it's an easy place to to go inflict the most pain that you can and in your moment of of pain yourself uh I think there are reasonable methods, but there is no possible way that Democrats will go along with anything like that. The only thing we can get agreement on is true law enforcement officers. So we funded a law enforcement officer in every school, SROs, in every school in the state. They don't have them. You know why? Because there's not enough law enforcement officers out there. Nobody wants to be in law enforcement. So we've got to improve law enforcement, which we did this year out of 17% increase in the starting pay form you've got to start somewhere to make law enforcement uh, a proud place to work before you're going to get enough law enforcement officers to service 
conceptually representative jordan is that something you agree with? i mean representative Lowe obviously does because he introduced a bill sponsored a bill conceptually are you on board with the notion of hardening soft targets absolutely you know this is one of those things we look at um you know i still have kids in school uh this when this last tragedy occurred i remember sitting in the car walk, watching my 10 year old walk away from me and he's going into school and he doesn't have a care in the world other than thinking he doesn't want to be at school and what's for lunch um but i'm thinking you know, we have a responsibility and obligation. Uh, mine is, of course, very personal as I watch that 10-year-old, but we all do to make sure our kids are protected and safe. And we we use words like tragedy, and that's that's an accurate word, but we don't use the word evil enough. That's what we're, we're confronted with, with evil in these situations. We look at these situations, and, and we, we don't even want to look at it very long. We want to break away because it is pure evil that someone would go into a school and murder innocent children. Um because it's evil, and, and I agree, when we look back at what Philip just described, at the things we've done by trying to create money for SRO officers to create and to create as you go to different schools. Schools aren't, you know, they're not the same when we were in school. It's, you you got to buzz in and out. There, there's a lot of safety mechanisms. You can't just walk in the door, at least in most schools anymore. I can't speak for all schools. I know the schools that I'm in and out of. Um but when you're confronted with something as evil as this, you've got to start thinking outside the box. You can't just think in terms of, well, let's get SRO officers. That's one reason I like Philip's idea so much. It, it's, uh, it's outside the box. It says, you know what, let's take the people that are already there that already have shown they love and care about these children and their future. They wouldn't be in these rooms for the most part teaching and, and uh, putting up with some of the things they put up with if they didn't love and care about these kids. So they're the natural uh, is it, is it, do I wish it was necessary? Absolutely not. Do I wish it was something that was, you know, we didn't have to even consider, of course, but the realities are all around us and remind us on a regular, all too frequent basis of the evil in this world. And we need to be prepared to defend it. Senator Rickenbach, conceptually, same, same question to you. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I don't want to ever over-spiritualize the fact that we've got a very real world, but when the Bible says that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, first word is kill, Ken. And it's not just a cultural battle. And there is a cultural battle, especially over our children. It's a spiritual battle, but there's a very earthly battle to where lives are going to continue to be lost if we don't do more. You know, I was at one of our fire stations yesterday and I had presented them with a grant award they had received at local Florence County Fire Station. They explained to me that they are forbidden from having a concealed weapon in their vehicle while they're at work at the fire station, right? Now think about the fact they're first responders and they are on the front lines and somebody who is going to look to create havoc, to create terror in the hearts of people, they don't draw difference between first responders who are law enforcement, who are ambulance, EMS, fire station, yet they wouldn't be able to protect themselves with a firearm, even if they've gone through the, 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 the required class to legally own that. I think we as a society have to realize if we don't harden our soft targets and allow the law-abiding citizens to protect themselves against those who don't follow the law, additional lives will be lost. Okay, Philip, I want to go back to you. You said the Democrats wouldn't let this happen. You guys are in the majority. Explain, uh, the, the I don't know, the, the impediment to getting this done. I can't explain it. I'll tell you we let the Democrats push us around on education, and there's just no reason for it. We control the subcommittees, the committees, the House, the Senate, and we can't seem to get it done. There's too many soft Republicans. 
Okay. Um, how can we address that, Representative Jordan? How, how can we change? I mean, if, once again, the majority rules, right? I mean, you, you guys have a big a majority in the House. Um, it's pretty overwhelming. I think we're at 80 or 81. I, I, I'd add to that, and, and, and I have hope for the, the next coming sessions. And one of the reasons why I have hope is Mike sitting here next to me. You know, when you look back, um, and I can remember several examples of this. You know, I got to the House year, several years ago now, and uh, I, we would pass in the House a key piece of legislation. And I'd look at Philip and say, that's great. And he'd look at me and say, we've passed it three times in the last six years. And it goes over the Senate and it dies. And that's, that's the, been the fate of too many pieces of legislation in the last decade or more. Um, I'm hopeful that the Senate is sort of transitioning to a, mo- a little more conservative um, posture. Um, so there's more hope in my mind that as the House can pass conservative pieces of legislation, as we have in the past, that the Senate can take that ball and run with it. And I think they can. And, Mike, that, that's my old stomping ground from um, serving some time in Columbia. You're in the Senate. That is considered to be the more cerebral and uh, and diligent body. To me, it's where policy goes to die. It's where legislation goes to die. Um, I have heard through the grapevine that there's a more conservative bias about the Senate today. Does that lead us to be more optimistic that legislation like this could become law of South Carolina? You know, I think the optimism lies in the constituents and voters getting outraged and, and people truly caring enough about this to call their senators because you can have an R beside your name and not truly be a conservative Republican. You've seen it, Ken. You've been in there enough years to know that there are some folks who change to be Republicans because it, it fit their model for their voters there. So the, the a true conservative, a true Christian Republican who says, this is important. This is what we're going to do. We're going to need the voters to push those who are a little bit too moderate, who are really Democrats in a in a, in a wolf's clothing, in a sheep's clothing. And if we don't do that, I don't see the change coming. Because there's some folks that have been in there a long time. You know the same names that I know. Sure. We're talking not just years, decades. And what are they? Are they truly liberals? Are they Democrats? Are they Republicans? And their voting answers that question. But, you know, I had breakfast with the Israeli consul general. Um, She's essentially the ambassador to the Southeast. And her point was Israel has figured out that until the people accept the fact that weapons are a part of society, either the bad people have them or the good people have them, but the bad people are definitely going to have them. You're not going to see a fundamental shift. And that's why they don't mind having grocery stores with people with long guns out front who are (laughs) trained to use them because it does make a a, a crazy person think twice before they're going to walk into that grocery store or the school or the hospital or they, you know, pick, pick, pick any topic you want there and fire that weapon. They know they're going to get hit back long before they're going to take out 20 or 30 people. Representative Law, to give your idea about a, a teacher having a weapon, being um, not just CWP permitted, but understanding, being competent, proficient with uh, firing, the, uh, firing the weapon or, or protecting the children. Should that person deserve uh, an upgrade and, and compensation that comes along with that? They've accepted uh, a very unique responsibility. Do, do, do we owe them an increase in salary in relation to that added responsibility? I didn't have it in my bill, but it's, it's certainly a good thing. These people would need to go to the training academy, the same place where sure. policemen are trained, and get trained there. Then they'd have to participate in local training along with police department, sheriff department, and, and critical people within that school to develop plans, to practice these plans. So, yes, they'd have more responsibility and probably should get paid. Weird comparison, uh, Representative Jordan, but it'd be a little bit like special forces within the teachers. I mean, it'd be like the Army and the Green Beret, the Navy and the SEAL. Um, I'm not saying we need John Rambo 
teaching our kids. But but I do believe if we ask that teacher to accept that added burden and responsibility, there needs to be some compensation considered. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be reasonable. And I think what, what Philip described is, is this ongoing training aspect of this. And it would have to be individuals that would want to do it, that would step up to the plate and say, yes, I'll take on that duty, that responsibility to be that sort of last line of defense. Is, is it fair, Mike, if you ask these teachers to do that, to reward them in compensation? It is. And we would need to give them the training that, that they need because it's not just firing the weapon. And I was down at Florence County Sheriff's Office yesterday on the range. And there's also the fundamental conversation of, are you prepared to take a life? And it's one thing to talk about it, Ken. It's another thing to say, you know what? If my back's against the wall and a gunman, a, a madman is, or a mad woman has entered this school, I'm prepared to put two in the body and one in the head and end their life. And that's a conversation that a lot of folks who get a CWP have never had that conversation with themselves. It's a very serious proposition that we're asking. Uh, Representative Lowe, what sort of feedback or response did teachers have when you introduced this bill? I mean, was it negative teachers union? I mean, I, Republicans and teachers normally don't see the world. Exactly the same way. What sort of um, interaction would, would it require to, to to convince us that we're all trying to get to a better a better place? Well, yeah, I had teachers privately contact me and say, "Wow, I'd be willing to do that." But then you have the teachers' unions, which isn't a true union here, but they speak from across the nation and stir things within social media. And so all of them, of course, were just opposed to it. So anybody that stuck their head up publicly and said, "Oh, I'd do that," they were pounding them. And, and so not many people came to testify saying that I would like to, to do this. I had a hearing, and the hearing, it was it was a joke. You know, I, heck, I'll just say it. Molly Spearman flipped on me. Before we walked in, she was with me. Walked in, oh, no, that's not a good idea. So anyway, we, we're going to be replacing her this next time. Think carefully who you put. No, that's where I was headed. I mean, we're going to elect a new superintendent of education. Um, we need to know where this person stands on fortifying or hardening some of these soft targets. It's interesting that we have a consensus here amongst the three of you. And I would imagine you three get in a room, you have a little bit of subtle disagreements and where we need to head from there. But but I think, you know, is this something the three of you are in agreement of as, as making a priority? But there are a lot of parents listening to the show that, that are nervous about their kid going to school um, come next year. Um, obviously, the, the session that started until January, there's a process of passing a law. This would be a, um, a controversial law. Uh, mind you. But uh, the three of you going on the record now that you consider this to be a priority. Senator, I'll I'll start with you. 100%. Okay. I have supported it and I will support it uh, completely. Okay. And I know you do because you sponsored the bill. I'll put it back in January. It's a new session. So we got to start over. Okay. Let's take a break. We'll be back. I want to find out some things you guys swung and missed on in this most recent year. We'll take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, 843-661-0937, Representative Philip Lowe, Representative Jay Jordan, Senator Mike Rickenbacher with us this morning. We've um we've talked a lot about what we want to get done. You guys have a consensus amongst the group. Um, you'll hash out your disagreements amongst yourselves. But I want to talk, um, Representative Jordan, I'll start with you. I want to talk about what we wish we'd gotten done but didn't. You know, there, it's a two-year cycle, and there's a lot of things that you start down and other things sort of pull you off. You know, we had to do, get through redistricting this, this last term, and that took a lot of bandwidth so to speak uh, as i look back over the session um i'd say one of the things that I, I hope we will revisit is our emergency um statute and what i mean by that is if you go back to when it seems like a long time ago now but when we were all you know covid was at its uh, peak and we were all on lockdown or a version of it i guess i should say uh, compared to other states we never really locked down um 
that necessitated in my mind and others' mind at the state house that we needed to, to modern, modernize and look at how we go into an emergency situation. You know, um, we we were fortunate, um, blessed, I would say, that we had a governor that took that role incredibly seriously, was a business-minded governor, um, and didn't want to happen, didn't want to see what happened in a lot of states where you know they truly shut down for a, and, and a very extended period of time. And as we sit here today, South Carolina has a, a, a humming economy in large part in, because we didn't shut down like a lot of these other states. We were more akin to the Floridas of the, of the country than we were the, the New Yorks and the Michigans of, of the world. And so because of that, we didn't have quite the problems. But what do, we, what do you do if, you know, re, Lord forbid that 10 years from now something like this comes back? And um, we don't have a governor like Governor McMaster who embraces those concepts. So several of us got together and came up with a, a modernization statute. We didn't quite get all the way through it. We had some back and forth with the Senate, and it un- unfortunately didn't get all the way through. But it's one of those things, you know, as a state, we're built for the hurricanes and such, that when when we have that type of situation, um, that the governor will go in and take us into an emergency but we need to modernize and take into uh, consideration what we've learned in the last couple of years. Uh, Senator, you joined midstream. Um, that's a swing and miss. Anything that you found uh, as someone who wasn't there the entire legislative year? Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd call it a swing and a miss as much as um, I think we could have hit the ball farther. And it was regarding the ability for retired law enforcement officers uh, to come back to work. As it stands right now, if you make more than $10,000, you can't come back. And to make you can't come back to a job and make more than ten thousand. So we got a proviso passed, but for one year um, we removed that cap because you want people to come back uh, who are who are. I mean, they started at twenty, they did twenty five years. They're only forty five years old. They've got over fifty years sure. old. They got a lot of life left, but they can't afford to come back. So the one year proviso was good, but that is not a law for the future. It's just one year. We'd have to pass it every year. So there's a lot of law enforcement that we talked to that said, you know, that's great. But I certainly can't afford to retire now knowing that that's only in a place for one year and you may or may not pass it next year. So if we really want to bring back those retired LEOs, uh, law enforcement officers, and have them still work and provide public safety, we've got to give them the assurance that they can do it and be able to make a reasonable amount of money. And we're not talking about 75-year-old retirees. We're talking about 45 and 50. 45 and 50 who still want to work no with, question. with their retirement. They can't, you know, who's going to come back for yeah. 10000 Interesting, interesting. Uh, Representative Lowe, you said something during the break very interesting to me. I mean, I painted kind of a doom and gloom picture about the $6 trillion and the $7 trillion and quantitative easing, quantitative tiding, negative interest rates. Um, Representative Lowe said something, I mean, excuse me, Jordan said something that I think is interesting. Um, we didn't completely shut down. I mean, all of us got frustrated and angry to some degree about things that were done. And in retrospect, we'll probably uh, do a postmortem forever on what we did, what we should have done. But but the state is in, um, some states are going to struggle, no question about it. They asked for these problems and they exacerbated these problems. South Carolina is in good financial standing and the economy is in, in a pretty good place as we speak. It's incredible. I mean, it's one of the the fastest growing states in the union. That's bringing us folks from from a lot of these Democrat states that just say, "I'm tired of it. I'm fleeing. I'm getting out of there." Um, three times this year, they upgraded the amount of money they expected we could spend in the budget. Now, of course, we have to balance a budget, and and so just what two weeks ago, I got another email said nine hundred and fifty million more dollars are coming 
They've done that three times this year. So explain how that works, uh, Philip, if you don't mind. The Board of Economic Advisors makes projections, and they revise the projections, and then real money shows up. I mean, if you don't mind, as somebody on the Ways and Means, explain in a cliff note fashion kind of sort of how that works. Yeah, so they they make a prediction, and we begin to budget off of that. And and the House starts the same amount of money that the governor starts, and and so the governor is input. It's not – where it all begins it begins in the house but you get that number and you start spending from the number they give you and then oh maybe a month and a half two months later they may revise it it could go up or it could go down it's prediction based on what's coming in that year that they expect to come in the following year that happened three times now right at the end of session when we're in conference committee where we're trying to discuss the two versions the house and the senate version of the budget they tell us there's 950 million more dollars. Well, that cures every problem you got between the House and the Senate. I mean, it, whatever you're arguing about, you can quit arguing. Yeah, you, you can fund it. It's it's just lay it out on a, a you know y'all just need to go home. It's done. That, As we that, say in business, revenue covers a lot of mistakes. It does, and I'm telling you, we're in great shape. We're putting more money in reserves in case there is a rainy day coming. We're we're fighting hard to put more money into the roads that well beyond what the tax increase was from years back. What I heard today, gas went up five cents last night. It took us two and a half years to get five cents on a, on the gas tax increase that people are screaming about. I mean, the reality is our state is in great shape. We've got reserves. We've got more income. We've got growth. And it's been a lot of sales tax growth. But, of course, with everybody making a little more money last year, the income tax Revenue was up too, so it's incredible to to be a. How impacted? And I'll stay with you here for a second. I want to get these two guys' take on this. How impacted is state government on what the federal government does? In other words, if we believe that nationally we're headed to some difficult times, the federal government, uh, the Fed, and the quantitative tightening, and all these other things, how um, impacted or affected or at the mercy of those things is the state budget and the state government? Well, everything that comes from the Feds will have strings. It'll tell you how you can spend it. And I'll, we've got ARPA funds. We've talked about this in here. American I Rescue said, Plan. Right. I want that to go towards our industrial needs to get industry for more jobs in this area. And we've fought hard for that. We haven't even started spending that money. That's $1.5 billion that's sitting there that they'll begin appropriating this fall. So there's there's got to be economic stimulus still coming, which is probably going to continue to cause inflation pressure because so much money still in the pipeline that hadn't even been appropriated and spent. As a, as a member of the General Assembly, does that concern you? Some of the um, some of the macroeconomic projections nationwide. Absolutely. You know, the federal government. If if you're sitting watching what they're doing, how can you not be frustrated with the the moves they're making in Washington D.C. And that obviously incredibly trickles down, and we have to be prepared to deal with it. You know, when I first got elected, it was at the end of the Obama administration, and so you had a taste of. You know how you had to have a sort of a combative relationship with with policymakers in that area, and then President Trump came along, and that was a different time. That was a very different time to be in state government, and now we're back into that sort of more be prepared for what they're trying to push down on on top of you. I remember one of my mentors when I first very first got elected, he was chairman of the judiciary, and he said, "Remember, you got a you got a couple jobs here. One of them is to try and work and pass good legislation, but the second one." 
and that's probably more important at times than the first one, and that is to kill the bad legislation and kill the bad things and fight the things, the bad things that come out of Washington D.C. And that's kind of you got to remember. There's two two uh, two things you got to do, Senator. As a, as a as a member of the, the the more deliberate body, how conscious do you have to be of uh, what Jamie Dimon says or, or what some of the um, economic forecast models are projecting? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a real duality in the macroeconomic perspective and the micro. I mean, Philip on Ways and Means is, is spoke to it, and he's really valuable there because it talks to how the budget works. But I grew up under Reagan's trickle-down economics, and you were a business owner. And you know what it's like that as a business, you want to grow. So at a macro level, when the government's making decisions, and again, when, when back in Reagan and he had trickle-down economics, the, the premise was as then the local people, as we grow, will invest back in the community. So when Sharice and I moved here in 2008, the dealership had 50 employees. But as you grow, you don't hoard the money. You don't dig it in a hole in the backyard. You grow your business. You hire more people. So now with three dealerships with 180 people, there's 180 families who now have jobs instead of just 50. We've got to figure out how to take the government level to federal level who's making macro decisions and how to affect the lives of those people locally. You know what, I guess getting back to the other swing and the miss, I wish we had arrived at what the raises was going to be to teachers. Teachers say, all, all this money's great. All the liquidity's great. What's my raise going to be? And we'll get there. We'll get to a budget. But in the absence of information, people assume the worst. And I got a lot of teachers who reach out and say, what's my raise going to be? What's the budget going to look like? We've got to get some finality to it and, and take those macro dollars and all that liquidity and the, the funds, the additional billion dollars, and let's get it in people's hands. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask these guys, take your legislative hat off a second and become a political pundit. Now, now, now for some of you, that's easy. For others, it would be more more difficult. But I want to go down kind of a, um, a philosophical avenue here as we conclude uh, the, the hour we spend with members of our General Assembly and State Senate. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Uh, we got three, legis- three members of the um, South Carolina legislature. And, and I'm going to ask them to take their legislative hats off. They're all prim and proper and buttoned up, and they answer these questions in such proficient fashion. Um, but, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to be a, a, a philosophical pundit here for a second, play radio show host for just a minute. Um, the advantage of my job, I get to ask the question and answer. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a luxury in life that I really, really enjoy. Um, you guys are on the other side of the table. Um, Mike, I'll start with you if you don't mind. So, so I believe that there is a... There's a kind of a, a an evolution, a transition happening within um, our party, the Republican Party. I think historically, um, intellectual conservatism and the National Review, you know what I mean? It was kind of the orthodoxies of that that defined, you know, success or failure, not just in an agenda, but a political campaign or not. Uh, we're living in an age and era now where, and I, and I refer to it as intellectual um, contradiction or intellectual um, contrarianism. Um, that there's a resistance to the status quo that is permeating the Republican Party today in a way that I've never seen nor ever imagined. Do you sense that? Do you embrace that? Do you accept that? How do you navigate that as a Republican office holder? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. I think the pervasive word I'd use right now, and this you just asked this question out of the blue, but enough. I think true conservatives have had enough. And what I mean by that is there was a time when conservatives – could mind their own business, could just live their life. And you know what? I can disagree with somebody, but that doesn't make me a bigot. Doesn't mean I discriminate against them. Like they do them and I'll do me. But now 
there's a cultural battle that I talk to so many true conservatives. We're tired of it. And we're tired of the fact that we are being forced to try to call somebody who's a man a woman because they feel like a woman. That your kids may have to go into a bathroom with somebody who was a man, play on the same sports. That you're asked to use pronouns that aren't accurate. They're just they're verbally not accurate. And accept rising prices, accept the cultural battle, the financial battle, and no longer can we be us and say, you know what? I disagree with you. I don't hate you. Don't wish you ill will, but I disagree with you. And I'm allowed to say that biblically, I think you're wrong because the word says it, but you're now a racist and a bigot. Conservatives have had enough. And I think what I'm hearing and the, the calls I get, the people who see me on the street, they're like, you know what? Fight. Like, let's fight back. We don't have to be angry, but let's fight back and push back because we've given up too much ground. The whole go along to get along. We're done with that. And I think conservatives are ready for leadership who's going to say enough. And now it's time for us to push back. Is that the Trump effect, Jay? The the combativeness, the fighting back? I think so. I think President Trump tapped into and and recognized something. I think Mike did a good job of explaining sort of this cultural uh, phenomenon within our country. I think in addition to that, um, Trump, Trump recognized that. But I think in addition to that, you see in Washington where um, two plus two doesn't equal four. You know, they, they do things up there that just don't flat out, just don't make any sense. And the, the average person, me and us included sitting at this table say, how in the world can you think that's a good idea? And then that leads you down the road that you end up where places like where, where gas prices are, you know, out the roof crazy. And then everything else, you know, falls apart from there. So I think when you put those two things together, uh, you end up with a group of people they get just frustrated. They get um, enough. I think that was that's a good way to describe it. And then you end up with a lot of things. We end up with the state house having to do that we probably shouldn't have to do. You know, we end up with that the pushback agenda where we have to go in and we have to pass um, the religion is essential bill to so that we have to clearly say that if there's ever any kind of government you know forced shutdown that people are allowed to go to, to their house of worship. We end up with a gender sports bill where we define uh, in state law that you know boys play in boys sports and etc um and and the reality is we, we look and we say we shouldn't have to be talking about these things but we do have to talk about these things and that's just where we are and and that's kind of where the gunslinger likes being right phil i mean this is kind of right in your wheelhouse you kind of like this evolution in the party i, I have enjoyed uh <laughs> watching trump one of the best nights i, I must sit up at four or five o'clock watching cnn cry but when he got elected the first time but let me tell you it, it's it's not this cultural stuff that drives us. It's the pocketbooks. And the Democrats have screwed up this economy so bad with the help of some Republicans, too. And they've screwed up so bad that there's a day coming, and it's going to be November, where they're going to get their feelings hurt again. And we're going to set them back probably four to six years with this one election because of the pain that they've put on us. And it didn't have to be that way. Let me ask you this, and tell me as much or as little as you'd like to say to this. We've got a very unique situation in our congressional race. Um, politicians don't like getting in other politicians' business. But, but it's, I mean, Trump's the theme of this race. I mean, whether it's Russell Fry, Philip Lowe, Jay Jordan, Mike Rickenbach, it doesn't matter. I mean, Trump is still the central figure in this race. Um, you gave us kind of a polling estimation. I'm, I'm pointing to Philip here. Um, last week, you're pretty close on that. What, what do you make of 42% Fry support, um, 25%? Uh, raw support, uh, and the rest less than 
Well, I think the prophet was pretty close there, you know. <laughs> the prophet. The prophet. Yes. Y'all see what I have to sit next to in five months the, out well, of I mean, the prophet. But, but, it was pretty, but what do you make of those, those numbers? Well, I think it's uh, understandable. This America First movement is the most important, and the endorsement by Trump was the most important thing that happened in this campaign. Um, we wouldn't even be talking about it if he had if Rice hadn't taken that vote. So um, well, here's where I look at I don't know. I have a little bit of fear that the Democrats are going to meddle and meddle heavy in this race. And the closer that this comes out between Rice and Fry, then the more meddling will occur. So some of these folks that have one, two, three, up to that 10% mark <clears throat> need to consider endorsing one candidate or the other and pulling back the reins. Let's see if we can end this thing in one vote. I don't believe the Democrats will come out the first time. I think if they smell blood in the water in the runoff election, they'll come out and they'll try to pick a candidate. So I think there's some soul searching has to go on. I know these people put a lot of time, money, and energy, and I'm not saying get out. It's your right to run and finish this race if you want to. But if you don't see a path forward to win, just think about that. What do you make of the math, Jay? Um. I think going as back, predicted as expected. Yeah, kind of, kind of. So I think um, what you just said a minute ago about you know to say this race doesn't have President Trump in the middle of it. I, I mean that'd be that would be like playing a football game without a football. He's he's at the, he is at every corner, every facet of this race. This all, whole thing. I don't think we have a race without uh, what took place with with uh, Congressman Rice and President Trump. And and I think this is going to be a, a test case for how people feel about President Trump, Mike. You know, I get asked a lot, what do you think about that seventh race? And, and I tell people the same answer over again. Man, pray. Just pray. I think we underestimate, Ken, the value of prayer. Pray for the candidate to be laid on your heart who's going to push true, biblical, foundational, conservative principles. And whoever that is, man, follow the Spirit and vote for that person because that's who we need in office. Well, explain. Thanks to all three of you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Thank you. So someone asked, what is intellectual contrarianism? I don't know. I don't have any idea what it is. It just sounded like the two words that needed to be put together to describe exactly where I think the Republican Party um, needs to be. I'm not saying they're there. And, and I, you know, these three guys would probably have different opinions than I. Um, that's, the I think, the great misconception of America first. You know, the people that believe they understand America first are not America firsters. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, they, they think it's a kind of a Neanderthal, um, shallow-minded, hayseed sort of way of looking at the world. I, I don't buy that for a second. And I think there's the most runway of any political movement in America today by far with America first. I mean, if you're an American, who doesn't want to put America first? I mean, whether it's conservative principles, moderate principles, pragmatic principles, biblical principles. I mean, they, they, there's, a, there's so much run, runway for the movement to be highly effective and win election after election after election. So when I say intellectual um, contrarianism, uh, Masters said, or it might have been Teal, one of the others said that um, Trump's ideology has to be um, basically morphed or, or molded into a disciplined political platform. And, and I think the transitioning from, I mean, what, what is Trump's ideology? I mean, it's combative. It's confrontational. It's argumentative. It's getting your face. It's not, I'm not backing down from you. I mean, if you say oh, a man's not a man and a woman's not a woman, I'm going to tell you that's stupid. And that can be perceived as a little bit elementary and juvenile and, and uh, you know, shallow-minded. No, I just think, um, once again, taking Trump's combative, 
confrontational ideology and, and allowing it to, to kind of grow up and become a disciplined political platform. Uh, I think that's the future of the Republican Party. Um, I think if you're an old traditional Republican, like our good friend, Dr. Neil Thigpen, I think it's hard. I mean, I think it's hard to understand uh, what, what are you doing with my party? What are you doing with the party that I have pledged loyalties uh, to all these years? But but I just think that Trump has basically found or reinvigorated the soul, the, the heartbeat of the Republican Party. And this could be such an effective movement if controlled in the right fashion. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. I was just uh, kind of bouncing to That's the, the ultimate one-hit wonder, and we didn't play Springsteen, so I'm, I'm, we'll get it in there before the end of the show. Would. Before I the knew. end of the show. I knew you wouldn't forget. So I'm really interested in this intellectual contrarianism that you're talking about. Well, but I, I just think it defines uh, an ingredient of the Republican Party today that is going to have to be critical and essential if it is going to be successful. Once again, I've never and aggressive. Well, I mean, I've, I've never. Yeah, I think it's combative. I think it's confrontational. I think I think Trump ushered in an era of American politics where where things that lack decorum that were. I mean, he's an irreverent politician. He 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 lacks decorum. He's bombastic. He's confrontational. He's controversial. I think the Republicans need to embrace some of that. I really and truly do. I, but I think you've got to intellectualize that. So I think Republican candidates who come off as somewhat contrarian but are able to intellectualize this contrarianism are going to be very successful. That's why I like Teal in the fall. That's why I like Blake Masters in Arizona. That's why I like J.D. Vance in Ohio. And These it's guys, not just being contrary to well, be I mean, contrary. No, no. You're, you're contrarian because you don't like the way the country is being run. You don't understand why you've got to defend you know, a man being a man and a woman being a woman. So some of the transgenderism and gender fluidity. I mean, you're sitting there going, really? I mean, I've got to explain in an intellectual way why I believe a man is a man and a woman is a woman. But I think there's going to be a necessariness that this movement is combative. It's confrontational. It doesn't shy away from conflict. And, and when I, when I, when I, the Peter Thiel's of the world, Peter Thiel's not a conventional conservative, but he's somebody who sees the world in a very um, contrarian sort of way. And I think these are the kind of people that I believe once Trump support wanes because no one political leader is going to sustain a political movement for multiple generations. But but he can create something that perpetuates itself. And that's why I'm excited about the America First phenomenon within the Republican Party. I think it crosses racial bounds, uh, ethnic bounds, religious bounds. Um, you know, the Republican Party, whether they admit it or not, historically has done a good job of kind of, you know, if you fit in my sandbox, you can play. But if not, then, you know, find you another home. And I think this is more welcoming and embracing. Um, and, and I think it's going to be more successful in the long run. It's a baby of a political movement. And we expect a lot of it right now. But, but it will eventually grow up. It will discipline itself. And I think it will define my kids and their kids' uh, generation as it relates to to American politics. Somebody who may have a similar uh, opinion or a different opinion is immersed in these sorts of things. We're fortunate this morning to have Elbert Guillory. Elbert Guillory um, has a, uh, a political action committee called Elbert Guillory's America uh, as a big part of that. Mr. Guillory, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It's great to be here with you. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, good to have you here this morning. But, but you are a Republican. You're an African-American, and you have tried to extensively work in the field of convincing African-Americans 
um, that they aren't obligated, that they're not commanded to vote for Democrat candidates, especially in the South. So, so what motivated, a little bit about who you are, where you come from, what you're about, and then what motivated you to, um, to, to, to basically be the proprietor of the Southern Initiative? I'm a uh, former Rutgers law professor. I've been practicing law for 50 years, born and raised in Louisiana, educated in the Northeast, uh, worked in government in six or seven different states, returned to my home in Louisiana, and uh, spent time in the state legislature as a, a representative and senator. And yes, I am a black Republican, and yes, I have spent a significant amount of time trying to explain to members of my community that what the Democrats have been doing simply does not work. Uh, it does not work in our community. Our communities are the worst educated, the least safe, and the most downtrodden. We have the fewest jobs. The, the buildings and roads are crumbling. This Democrat stuff that we've been doing simply does not work. So if it does not work, why have the Democrats continue to have a stronghold or a, a chokehold on the black vote? And, and what are the Republicans doing wrong to convince African-Americans that there is a kind of another option in, in American politics? The chokehold has remained because Democrats have been very successful in portraying themselves as the saviors of the black community. They sent out people like Obama and uh, Calamity Harris, and they have them out as ambassadors. We have not had those high-level uh, Republican ambassadors before now. However, with the Southern Initiative going, we have a large number of U.S. senators, uh, U.S. congressmen, and lieutenant governors. Uh, and, and perhaps one governor who will, across the South, turn that around as when, ambassadors. When you look at the issues of the black community, I mean, I've always argued that at the end of the day, whether you're an African-American, a white, you know, a, a Jew, a, a, a Christian, it doesn't, we all want um, – we don't. We want violence out of the communities. We want public schools to perform well. Uh, we want to address the homelessness. Immigration is a big part of this. What What is it about the African American community that is unique to? Because um, I've always said, as a radio show host and former politician, I'm not going to tell you I know exactly what it's like in the black community because I don't. I grew up in a Baptist church in a rural South Carolina setting. I understand that world very well. But what is it about the black community? That, that, that white Republicans need to understand? White Republicans need to understand that the black community is one of the most conservative communities, one of the most godly, one of the most family-oriented, one of the most education-needing communities that there is. So all we have to do is address the basic needs of the black community and and it's been working because there is a major exodus of blacks from the democrat ballots from their from their roles uh to republicanism and it's working well with lieutenant governor sears and as you will see across the south we've had great success in texas having it in louisiana arkansas 
across the South. How much courage does it take? How frustrating is it to be an African-American Republican leader in, in getting your voice heard? And in, in other words, when you turn some of the um, some of the punditry on television and you watch uh, some of the people that supposedly represent the African-Americans, there's hardly a conservative. There's hardly a Republican. Is that frustrating? Does it anger you? Does it motivate you? How do you respond to that reality? It is frustrating at times. It has been a lonely world, as you can well imagine, uh, a lot of slings and arrows. But if you are, I'm a Baptist preacher, and I believe in God, and I believe that what I'm doing is God's work. And so God and I are a majority, so I'm not alone. It doesn't bother me. How do we support Albert Guillory's America? Uh, by going to the Elbert Guillory's America site, by uh, giving us advice, giving us your prayers, giving us some money so that we can continue across across this country, really. Uh, we are working in probably a dozen states right now to get minority persons, uh, blacks and Hispanics, um, because Hispanics, too, are part of this and they are part of the great exodus that we are seeing now, now uh, at the midterms and that we will see again in, in 23 uh, as we elect a president and the other national officers. Mr. Gillier, is there a website, a phone number, uh, an email address? Is there some sort of um, location people who, listen, who are listening this morning can, um, can go to and find out more? Yes, sir. ElbertGillier'sAmerica.com. Or you can contact me at 337-942-6328 or Albert Lee Guillory, my uh, Facebook page. We're on Instagram and all of those other young people's sites. (laughs) I can certainly relate to that. Sir, we thank you for your time. We wish you nothing but the best. You're one of the true warriors in American politics today. You know the grind. You've accepted the responsibilities of the grind, and I applaud you for that, and thank you for that, and good luck. Thank you so much. Godspeed, and thank you. Thank you very much. There's Albert Guillory, kind of a unique personality in American politics. Mike, .org. Okay, it's America's, excuse me, Albert Guillory's America.org. Mike's got it put up now, and uh, and the guy's really dedicated a lot of his life to um, the Southern Initiative. I mean, on the website it says, and it's, uh, it's basically his effort to break the Democrat, what, chokehold, stranglehold on the African-American vote by uh, supporting and publicizing uh, conservative issues and America first issues. Um, if I had longer time or a much uh, a more a more entailed interview, I would have tried to get to America first because it seems to me, once again, that African-Americans are buying in uh, to a higher degree to this America first agenda. Um, you know, the, the, the George Wills of the world, you know, the, the bow tie elitist. With all due respect, I think Will's a good man. I think Will's a smart man. I think Will's ideas and notions of where the party needs to be are, are very unwelcoming and very limited to who would be um, engaged Out in that. Style. Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the interesting comments of Trump and Blake Masters yesterday, Trump said that um, young people find Blake very interesting. 
I, I just think, I mean, Trump read that somewhere. That that, uh, And it's true. I mean, when you look at the, um, the polling in Arizona, for whatever reason, Blake Masters resonates with young people. I mean, he's kind of a hipster. You know what I mean? He's from Silicon Valley. Uh, he was the CEO of Palantir. Uh, you know what Palantir is? That was um, that's Teal's fund, and um, so he's uh, it's it's kind of you know these guys are infiltrating the party. You know, Vance comes from the Tillist, the Tillist world, um, and now Blake Masters receives Trump's endorsement. Um, Robert didn't answer that question like I wish he had a couple of days ago when I I mean I kind of teed it up and said, uh, Robert, what is the Teal effect in all of this newfound energy within? the Republican Party, and he basically said one sentence, Peter Thiel's a big deal. Well, I mean, Robert's a pollster. You know what I mean? I don't Do you poll Peter Thiel. <laughs> what, what do Republican primary voters think of Peter Thiel? You know what the answer you get most? Who? Right. Who? Who? Unless they listen to this show. <laughs> yeah, and unless, well, I mean, I, and I don't want to say that we were a little bit ahead of the curve, but, but we said several years ago that we thought this guy had something to contribute. Obviously, he's got a lot of money. And, and, you know, money's the mother's milk of politics. Anybody who has that much money and, and you be, believe they're compelled or inclined to engage, sure. I mean, you know, what politician did go pay Peter Thiel a visit? I mean, anybody that writes a check for $10 million twice, for you folks in Pampago, that's $20 million bucks <laughs> for anybody for anybody who does that. Um, he gets your attention. So, so, so you know, candidates and, and members of Congress know exactly who Peter Thiel is. But if Robert Cahaley polled the voters of America, Republican primary voters, what is your opinion of Peter Thiel? The, 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 you know, the highest percentage would be who? And, and then you would have probably some favorables and unfavorables. But, uh, but the, Masters can, the, the Masters campaign now has the Trump endorsement. And you got to believe this, Rev. I mean, you and I aren't in those meetings. You probably could be if you wanted to, um, but, but you're not. Uh, <laughs> but when, when, when Thiel and Trump meet or speak to one another, you got to believe Teal leaned on him to endorse J.D. Vance, and you got to believe Teal leaned on him to endorse oh, yeah. Blake he's, Masters. He's invested. Sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Donald, I've done what I can do. I mean, my endorsement means nothing. You know, they want my money, and I've been willing to write two big checks, one in one race. I mean, he's written several checks. I mean, I think uh, nearly $100 million is what he's given to Republican candidates, but Teal and Vance, and, and the reason there's a, um, I, I don't know, Rev, a, uh, a larger contribution to those two is there's personal history. Uh, Vance worked for Teal and Blake Masters ran the um, the fund, the Palantir Fund. Um, I just think it's so interesting that we're sitting here having a conversation about Republican politics that includes the co-founder of PayPal, a Silicon Valley executive who ran Palantir Investment, and J.D. Vance, who won the Republican nomination, uh, from Appalachia, you see where I'm headed. I mean, think of the diversity there. So think of think of how how different or how much attractiveness or appeal that would have to a different. My daughter's not going to be attracted to Rand Paul, Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, Peter Thiel, different animal. So all of a sudden, I'll give you an example. Ask a 20 year old. You got your kids are how old? Uh, 26. Okay. Okay. 20, okay. In mid twenties. Mid twenties. So you ask your two boys. Hey. Um, you ever read the National Review? What are they going to say? No. Okay. What if you said, "Hey, um, let's go watch, uh, let's go watch George Will speak at the Performing Arts Center tomorrow," and they're going to say, "Who? <laughs> George Will? He was a contributor to the National Review. He's a, a kind of a Buckley disciple." 
Um, not that. I got something to do. I mean, I'm not going. You're right. Let's go watch. Hey, hey, this guy named Peter Teal's coming to speak at the Performing Arts Center. I want you to go with me. Who is Peter Teal, co-founder of PayPal? What, what do you think the response is going to be? It's going to Let's be go. a lot different, guys. The co-founder of PayPal is going to speak at the front. You see where I'm headed. I mean, I think there's a, a higher degree of engagement with a universe of people that have historically, we've not had a lot of interest in, and subsequently, they've had not a lot of interest in us. It's kind of, um, you know, you don't care about me. I don't care about you. All of a sudden, Rev's kids, you know, my kids. Okay, I didn't know who Peter Thiel was, but uh, he's the co- No, Cato couldn't get past. He was gay. <laughs> we always gave that. Yeah. We always gave. Uh, I, I didn't tell Katie to begin with. I, we were talking one day in the studio, real inside joke. I said, um, I sent. I, said, I may have sent you and Cato a Peter Thiel video about higher education, and Cato sends back th- this rave review. You know, that's the guy we need to be president. That's the guy we need to be in charge. That's the guy we need to make secretary of education. We get here the next morning. I said, Cato, I left one nugget of information out because Cable was the Bible thumper now. I said, I left one nugget of information out. And Katie said, what is that? I said, he's gay. And Volcato, look on his face, was like, <laughs> oh, man, now I'm conflicted. Now, <laughs> and I left it out on purpose. You know, I knew I would blindside him with it after the fact. 843-661-0937. We'll be back in just a few moments. And I got everybody in a good mood, right? Everybody's <laughs> in a good mood. Ready for the weekend now. Really? Except what? <laughs> what? What is saying? Thumbs she down. knows she likes she likes the little catchy catchy Manford Man of the Earth Band version of Blinded yeah, by the Light. You mean the hit version? The yeah. version was a hit. Well, I mean, it, it was a hit. In that fact, was... that that one is so different from the version that people know and like. That's the original that, version. That you have to explain that that is Bruce Springsteen playing his song that he wrote. Correct. Blinded by the Light. Manford Man's Earth Band did the hit version. Well, I mean, Manford Man tells a story. You know, he did this real um, complicated arrangement. Uh, you know, synthetics and what am I trying to synthesizers yeah. and yeah, keyboards and all these other sorts of things. Yes, and better. Bruce is kind of a purist. So so Manford Man invites Bruce to to the studio to say, hey, man, here's what I did with your song. And he's like, he ain't going to like it, man, because he's a, kind of a purist and, you know, rock and roll guitarist and all these other things. And they play the arrangement. And about 30 seconds into it, Bruce goes like, like yeah, I mean, you nailed it, man. I mean, that, 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 that'll sell far more records. Uh, but Bruce was not real good at selling records. It's still not great at selling. I mean, would you agree to that? He, he's <laughs> well, he's sold a few. But, I mean, got to give him credit. Well, he's sold a lot because he's been doing it such a long, long time. When he time. has hits, people buy him. But but in in his his reputation is not for writing hits. Well, singing hits. I mean, he's written a lot of hits, not sung anywhere near as many. Uh, but his reputation is kind of a um a singer songwriter, somebody who has adhered to whatever the roots and values of his career were, and you know um. Despite, I think it's funny because you picked at me last week about uh, Keith Richards referring to Springsteen as pretentious. Mm-hmm. And I said, so Richards plays in a band that has Mick Jagger as its front man, <laughs> and they're pre- he excuses somebody else of being pretentious. Really? <laughs> really? How about um, hypocrisy? Can we say that? Uh, everybody but he, but is Keith conflicted. Richards. Well, that's Keith Richards, yeah. and he gets away with it. No, no doubt about it. Now, Richards did say, I, I don't like saying this because he's such a nice guy. You know, he's such a good dude. Uh, but but he's really, he, Richards is, I mean, I read the article you sent me, and I know you sent the, when when Rev pressed send, excuse me, when he mashed send, mm-hmm. he probably pressed a hole through the glass. <laughs> Take that, you Springsteen weirdo. Um, and I waited till late on a Saturday afternoon to send it. When, you know, I was 
in the south. <laughs> See <laughs> what kind big, of response I got. a big time at the beach. <laughs> um, yeah, I told the reporter from the Post and Courier, you know, we're going to talk this afternoon about the 7th Congressional race. And I said, um, now, if you want a more flavorful and colorful opinion, uh, you know, call me at about 4 o'clock Saturday <laughs> afternoon, and then I'll really tell you what I think about it. You found what Philip Lowe said very interesting a second ago. I, I just like Philip because he'll just say it. He, well, he, he basically said, got to get some of these people out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, people nip around the edges and dance around. got to get two or three of these people out. But that's so refreshing when you have, you know, politicians and elected <laughs> officials will yeah. tell you what they yeah. think. Tell you what they think. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. We have John in Bennettsville on the line. Hello, John. Hey, guys. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to have to report Wake Up Carolina for cruelty to animals. I don't know what kind of squalling that was coming over the radio. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, you made Rev's day. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, I want to ask you guys, did you see uh, the legislation that old that fascist in Canada Trudeau's trying to do with the uh, – he's trying to ban handguns now. Yep. And do you think that's uh, a precursor of old uh, Brandon there – might see how that works out for him and he's going to try the same thing here or do you think uh that's a reach i think that's a reach thank you john appreciate it despite this snide comment about springsteen <laughs> i mean he, i mean trudeau's a socialist i mean there's no doubt about it i mean he, he's a full-fledged socialist um he wants to be popular amongst the globalist um trudeau doesn't want to just go to davos he wants to be on the panel i mean he wants to be there with the movers and shakers and that globalist davos sort of mindset um, I mean, the American people will not stand for that. Now, now, Biden says, and I listened last night to some of what he had to say, but he, I mean, he regurgitates nonsense after nonsense after nonsense, but he said, we've got to do something. I mean, we've got to do something. Well, I mean, that's something, you know, a president's got to come out with more substance than that. I mean, you know, tell us what you think we need to do, Mr. President. Um, but, but, you know, th- there's a movement on the left guys that really and truly wants to take your gun away. I mean, they, they absolutely would, um, in a skinny second, take the Second Amendment right that you have preserved in the in the Constitution. I'm trying to find this. Um, it's kind of an interesting story here. Okay, here we go. We're talking about Biden and what Biden says and what he doesn't say, and what he means and what he doesn't mean. Uh, no, John, we're not going there. I mean, it, there is no way in this world. Uh, I got a lot of uh, I, what am I trying? A lot of opinion given to me yesterday about Lindsey. People are deeply bothered that, that Graham says, and if I'm not mistaken, he tweeted after the president's uh, remarks to the country that he would support, you know, some of the issues or ideas. Well, what I what I read is he is ready to vote on all the proposals. Didn't say he would vote for him, but it, you know, in his ready defense, to vote he said, all. "I'm ready to vote on all of the proposals." And and we shall see how that sorts itself out. Um, I guess Lindsey's been in good standing with Republican voters in South Carolina long enough. It's time for him to go to the other side, <laughs> the dark side. That he visited, we'll that he visits periodically and occasionally. Um, but Biden, I don't know if you saw this or not. Brit Hume um, said that Joe Biden asked him a while back um, in his better days when he was in the Senate, um, Brit, why don't you use any of my quotes? And Brit Hume said, um, because you're a blowhard and, and nothing you say <laughs> means anything. I mean, it, and everybody up here knows who you are. You're a dunce. You're a blowhard. You're not too to be taken seriously. Maybe that's the. Um, the advantage the Democrats had in running a guy like Biden, um, lock him in the closet, tell him to shut up and let Trump keep saying crazy things and, and maybe he'll alienate enough Republican voters or, or, or get the iron dander up of enough Democrats. Um, we question whether that happened or not, but 
you know, there's a person in the White House that is not named Donald Trump. I looked at some of the Gallup um, and Pew Research uh, economic confidence indexes. Uh, I told you, Pew and Gallup do a lot of polling outside of, I mean, Robert Cahaley was on our show, but Robert does specific polling for, for, for campaigns. I mean, as you know, I provide information to campaigns and candidates so they can evaluate uh, whether they trust the information or not, and then what do they do with it. Um, Gallup and Pew do a lot of other sorts of things. And, and one thing they've done is the Economic Confidence Index. I think that's what Gallup refers to it as. Pew does the same thing. They just call it something a little bit different. But in the Gallup Economic Confidence Index, it's minus 45. That is as low as it's ever been. Fewer Americans have confidence in this economy than they've ever had. So when we hear the economy's humming along, it's doing fine, it's, I, I just think there's a suspicion that most Americans have about the underlying sentiments. What, what, are the, what are the bedrocks? What are the foundations of this economy? And why don't I trust them? But when you begin breaking down this economic confidence index as low as it's ever been, minus 45, um, I just found it interesting. And I want to get my reading glass because this is real small print. I've got it highlighted. Um, there are one, two, three, there are four issues that poll at about 10% or better. Immigration at eight, um, the economy in general at 12, high cost of living slash inflation at 18. But you know what the number one most important problem facing this country today in relation to the Gallup Economic Confidence Index? The government and poor leadership. People are beginning to wake up. I mean, I'm not saying we're in a renaissance. I'm not saying all of a sudden Americans are going to be civic-minded and pay far closer attention to who they vote for and why they vote for that candidate. But I think a lot of Americans over a cold beer on the weekend when they discuss inflation and gas and immigration and a lack of respect for one another and health care and civility in society, I think they really start really pointing a finger at government. We are a horribly governed country. There is so much beauty in our Constitution. There's so much potential in the American people. But the political system in America, the American government, has basically hijacked and commandeered a lot of that entrepreneurship and innovation and um, creativity and, I don't know, the human desire, the human condition that I think is a celebration of America. And, and I think people are beginning to be highly suspicious of, you know, if we've got a problem in immigration, whose fault is it? I mean, if there's an issue with the cost of living and inflation, um, who's to blame? I mean, the government has asked you over and over again for more and more responsibilities, right? I mean, you know, some of us acquiesce and give in, some of us don't. Um, but the government over the last 40 years has said, hey, um, will you allow me to do this? You know, will you vote for me to do that? And we, the American people, and a bunch of Americans still feel that way. I'm not one. Um, but I think those of us who believe that the trains aren't running on time, that the schedule is not being met, are beginning to uh, – I mean, I've always been this way. I mean, but I'm a suspicious contrarian by nature. You don't have to wind me up too tight to get me going down, down that road. Um, my famous saying today is they're going to turn you into me. You know, during COVID, I would always tell someone, they're going to turn you into me. I mean, I just got there a lot earlier than you did, and I'll probably be a little more extreme than you are by the time you get here, but they're turning you into me. Well, they're turned enough yous into me's that, that now the number one contributor to the, the, the Gallup's Economic Confidence Index is a lack of confidence or faith people have in their government. 
So, so yeah, I mean, immigration and trade and abortion and, and unifying the country and crime and violence, all these things matter. But I think we're beginning to understand that the government is asked to do things that they're just not fundamentally positioned to do. They don't know how to do these things, despite them wanting to do this things, uh, these things. But the government-run economy has always been the mindset of the liberal. I mean, it's always been the mindset of the socialist, the communist, and even the liberal. So, so we're having at it. And, and that's kind of my hope. I mean, when, when I get optimistic about America, that's the optimism. The optimism is that a lot of people are beginning to, uh, with more clarity, understand you didn't create all these problems. I mean, some deadbeats in society did. But let me ask you a question, Rev. If the government offers you money for nothing, if the government offers to pay off your student debt, I mean, you're not a bad person for taking their money. You're not immoral or unethical for letting them pay your student debt off. If they're giving it out. But they're immoral and unethical for offering that. It's not your fault. How many people sent their stimulus back? Sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we've had this debate uh, time and time again. You're not the problem. When they offer you money for nothing, take it. If they offer to pay off your college debt, let them do it. But we're all going to sink together if that becomes normalized. Once again, normalizing the abnormal, corruption, medians, competence. Uh, th- these are the sorts of things that I think have contributed to a nation in significant decline. Um, now, we had a debate earlier this week about if we skip B, we're done. We're not in decline. We're done. Remember the debate about uh, the shooting in Uvalde and and whether we go from there to horror and heartbreak and sorrow and then you know scoring political points or cashing in political opportunities some of you believe we go straight from a to c there is no b there any longer well if that's the case we're just fundamentally done i mean we're not in decline we are done and it will happen a lot quicker the unraveling uh, will happen a lot quicker than i imagined it would but that's kind of an encouraging number to me i mean there's some encouragement amongst the discouragement because the nation is facing very significant headwinds and I think I've articulated in somewhat of a um, understandable fashion uh, what I think some of the major, major economic challenges are. Uh, Mike Rickenbaugh talked a lot about the cultural issues. Uh, Jay talked a lot about the cultural issues facing our country, the societal and cultural rot, the moral depravity that we've accepted as a nation, um, the evil that we've tried to normalize. Um, if someone's evil, were they born evil? Did they become evil? Um, I think one of the major issues in America today and, and I guess if I were arguing to do certain things that the government's not supposed to do, how do we de-isolate young people? I mean, how do we create a communal atmosphere for young people? Because I think that's dangerous. I mean, I worry about all of my kids. I worry about your kids. And I'm talking about from the age of 9, 10, 11, all the way up to 25, 6 or 7, they seem to be very content being alone. And I think loneliness breeds isolation. Isolation breeds some of these uh, depression and anxiety. And I think those are very dangerous collectively to a normal society. Take a break. Back in a minute. Madman drummers, bummers, Indians in the summer. And a teenage diplomat. (laughs) What What does that even mean? What does that even uh, Anyway, anyway, anyway. (laughs) If you put enough instruments in it, it doesn't matter what it means. Synthesizers and uh, what are we, not pyrotechnics. What am I trying to say here? Technologically enhanced music. I mean, in the era of like electronic uh, instruments. Yeah, there you go. So, so what is that called? What sort of music is that called? 
and I'm talking about the Human League. And remember the ones that you you, you, you strum a guitar and it plays for like an hour and a half, yeah. and then some keyboard sounds like synthesizers somebody. and drum machines. Yeah. And, okay. When was when would that have been the most prominent? When what era 80s? would that? Have, okay, the '80s rock would have been heavily involved in that sort of. So when I say synthesizers and electronically created music, what band do you hear? Flock of Seagulls. Okay, there you go. That's, that's a good one. Human League would be another. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Um, Flock of Seagulls, your favorite. It, to, well, it's not my favorite. It was an influential you, you band in my time. You went through a period of Flock of I Seagulls. Did. I did. I did. I had to do. <laughs> I had the hair kind of hanging down. Now the guy's singing uh, that song on a cruise ship. I mean, I'm is. serious. There are YouTube videos out there now. The guy has no hair, uh, but he's got that one song. <laughs> And it's so interesting when he sings that one song on a cruise ship, how many people my age jump up. Sure. I remember that. I, I remember where I was. I had we, the uh, hairdo. Yeah, I had the hairdo. <laughs> didn't have it for a day or two because I was still under my father's thumb during that time. And my dad didn't say, hey, can we sit down and discuss your haircut? My dad said, have me your damn hair. <laughs> and that <laughs> You got the message. You still like that. Yo, I, I got the it. message loudly. I love that There story. was a lot in that one sentence. It was basically, if you're going to live in my house, son, you're not going to be that stupid. Um, I think about my dad. My dad died at 04. My dad died just before the world lost its mind. You know, and um, he saw the economic uh, 2001, you know, and 9-11. I mean, he, lived, he, he saw enough of this new world, but... um. But my, my dad never was influenced by the Patriot Act or, you know, the, the Homeland Security Organization. I mean, he died before those really became. My dad today would be as angry as any human being who has ever lived on this planet. My dad would probably, in all likelihood, be incarcerated as, as we speak because <laughs> he didn't like people telling him what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. And we live in a world today, guys, that if you let the government do it they will certainly embrace that opportunity tell you where to stand what to do how to do it the travesty in all this believe. the sadness in all this is how many of us were willing to do it damn it back in a minute taste mondays to make fridays you know what that means pepsi of florence t-shirt pepsi giveaway uh takes mondays to make fridays trivia question here's our question you ready the first answer to this question wins a six-pack of Pepsi product and it takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. Game one of the NBA Finals was last night. Who has won the most NBA championships in professional basketball history? There's two teams. They're tied. What two teams have won more NBA championships than anybody in NBA history? 843-661-0937. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence takes mondays to make fridays do we have a caller we do hi you're on you know the answer yeah boston celtics there's another there's two teams boston celtics and the, uh, the boston celtics <laughs> okay there's a tie Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. there are two teams tied for who has the most nba championships who are those two teams do we have a call uh yep okay hi you're on the air you know the answer Yes, I do. The Lakers and the Celtics. You're right. The Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Bill from Sumter. Okay, Bill, hang on just a second. I'll get you back to Mike. He'll get your, your information. If the Celtics win this one, they will have won 18. They will break the tie. that the La I think the Lakers won two or three years ago with LeBron James and tied the Celtics. But the Celtics are up one nothing. Uh, actually won on the road in Golden State. 
Um, oh, you mean the NBA season's still going well, I mean, on? It's, you know, the Lakers and Celtics, if you're my age, mean one thing, bird magic. I mean, that's all it means. It wasn't the Celtics and the Lakers. It was bird versus magic. Still the greatest sports rivalry in American history. I still believe that Larry Bird and Magic Johnson had so many societal issues and race and blue collar and showtime, all these other sorts of things. But thank you, Bill, and thanks to Pepsi of Florence. They, um, for whatever reason, continue to tolerate, <laughs> not just tolerate, support, support. this nonsense. And we appreciate it. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.